You're listening to episode 41 of the Secret Origins podcast, featuring the origins of the Flash's art gallery. I mean, Rogue's gallery. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and people, we're up to issue 41. There are only 10 regular issues left in this series. The end is fast approaching, and by now, I think we've all accepted that we're not going to get an origin of Metamorpho or the Silver Age Hawkman in this series. Oh, too bad. (laughs) Yeah. Like, 80% of the rest of the stories in this series are villains, genre heroes who haven't been seen since the 50s, and members of the Legion of Superheroes. And kicking off that bold new direction for the last leg of this series, we have the secret origin of the Flash's Rogues Gallery. And here to help me shine a searchlight on these crooks is the host of the Pulp to Pixel podcast. Please welcome back to the show... Dr. G, the man of nerdology. Thanks for having me back, Ryan. No, thank you very much for coming back. Uh, You know, I was thinking about your last appearance on the show when we covered Rocket (coughs) Red, and I realized there was something missing. You were on the second segment of that episode, which means you didn't get to hear me say Secret Origins was an anthology (laughs) series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And that figure is actually low, because I think I counted this issue as one story when I did my initial calculations, but we get like six origins in this issue. Seven. Seven, because we basically, it's a grad issue too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, Dr. Doctor, let's talk about some (laughs) Flash Rogues. What is your reading or perhaps your viewing experience with these characters? For me, I think the rogues definitely go back to, I would say my first rogue I actually read would be Captain Boomerang when he was first being inducted into the uh, Suicide Squad during Legends. I would say that would be my very, very first reading with a rogue villain. But after that, I would have to say that it was the Wally West Flash series, where many of the rogues came back as heroes. So my actual reading of them, I'm much more used to like Captain Cold and Heatwave being reformed criminals. And uh, Pied Piper actually being a very earlier representation of LGBT community because he came out in that series as well. But I think the real start would be uh, Mark Hamill, though, as the trickster on the Flash TV show. That was 
basically and I remember watching uh, Entertainment Weekly interview with Mark Hamill and where you basically learn that Mark Hamill is like the biggest comic book nerd ever. <laughs> and he literally like the face he made when he's like, wait, I get a trickster mobile and how gleefully happy he was just made me love that man even more. And he was already Luke Skywalker at, <laughs> at that point. It was kind of like he had already won. He was Luke Skywalker and then he extra won. <laughs> So, yeah, those are my that's my earliest rogues experience. And then from there, all of their animated and live action appearances at this point. Uh I went back and I was thinking probably my first experience with a lot of these characters. It was reading Underworld Unleashed number one, (laughs) where five of them die in like the first 10 pages. Mm -hmm. Uh, The whole thing sets up with where they're tricked by the devil into committing these five bombings or something in the shape of a pentagram to summon Neuron or something. And they all end up dying. So they're all sacrificed. Because I remember looking at it, I was like, oh, man, these guys are kind of cool looking. I I like the look. And then they're all dead. And I was like, I'm not going to read issue two of this. Oh, no, this is Carmen Infantino mm-hmm. design at its best. You yeah. know, I mean, I mean, this is his signature character run story, right. even though he did lots of like Batman work. I mean, Carmen Infantino and, and The Flash are like the two most synonymous, I would say, names that go together in creator character sort of things. It's like I would say put that up there with, you know, like things like Neil Adams and Batman or Denny O'Neill and Batman. How you like you hear those names, you're like, oh, that's that character right there. So right. Carmen Infantino's here. So this is all his design through and through. When I ended up coming back and started reading mm. these DC comics, I got the Showcase Presents volume of The Flash. I got the first two volumes of that. And I was reading that sort of concurrently as I was reading Trades of Jeff Johns's run on The Flash. <laughs> so I was getting the first appearance of all these guys in these very silver-agey stories. And then I was getting Jeff Johns' much more deeper, more textured explorations of, okay, what would Captain Cold really be like? So it was a great way to fall in love with these characters because you got their a sense of what they were originally conceived to be and then their potential in a more sophisticated type of setting. So yeah, I've always liked these guys. And I told you about it before we were starting that credit to Flash and to Carmine Infantino, as you were mentioning, and Kaniger and John Broom, the guys who worked on these. But his rogues gallery, the fact that they get their own book, is in the top five all-time best comic book rogues galleries. Um, oh, I would, yes. I would put absolutely. it up there. I don't think there's a DC hero other than Batman with a bench as deep and colorful and maybe varied as this group. Even Superman. Uh, he's got plenty of villains, but I think the rogues, there's an X factor about them that they just stand out. Well, and I think also with Superman, he runs into the problem of like some of his rogues just suck up all the oxygen, you know? Yeah. Lex Luthor, Brainiac, and. That's about it. I mean, Lex Luthor and Brainiac and then maybe like a Kryptonian villain are always going to make the forefront because they can really kind of match him. And then everyone else is kind of weird annoyances where Batman are like every one of his rogues, even the ones that you shouldn't should be no problems like Zaz. Right. Zaz should be no problem, but he's always a problem because he's just too crazy. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the really strong ones. And but yeah, Flash is the same way. All of his rogues still are powerful. And and I think they fit perfectly in the sense that of all of them, Flash is the most cops and robbers superhero yes. of the DC universe. Absolutely. Like 
Batman is their profiler, like in that in that police procedural, you know, and he's also their sort of like martial arts vigilante yeah. sort of thing. Superman is very much more their disaster relief hero. You give him something big, throw a volcano his way, you know, throw an earthquake his way. That's that's how you you really get him off his game. Whereas Flash, it's always like somebody just stole some jewels. <laughs> somebody just robbed a bank. And and I love that aspect of it. It's like because it's, and, and it's, it's inherent. It, in his power is the chase. That's yeah, his whole thing. Yeah. It's the chase. So it works for that gimmick. You're right. You're right. No, you're absolutely yeah. right. And I think that's where the nuancing coming out of the new writing and Jeff Johns and stuff has been great because it's like Captain Cold has been, as of late, the most recent iterations I think has probably been the best because you get to play him almost like a a Richard Stark Parker character, you know, like the consummate bank robber, <laughs> the consummate thief, not just the sort of like, oh, I, I rob liquor stores. No, it's this is like, no, I plan hipping heist and I get away with them. Yeah. I don't just plan them. I get away with them and I get away with them well enough that I don't do time, you know, except when this one guy comes in and then, you know, it's almost beating the flash is now the weird bank vault challenge instead of the bank vault itself. Yeah, I made the comparison, I think, on an earlier episode where when I think of these guys, I think of Robert De Niro's crew from the movie Heat. Oh, yeah, totally. They are professionals. This is their job. They take it seriously. And they're not going to suffer like cowboys who come in and just think they can shoot everybody. Because yeah. that's going to be the difference of them getting in trouble and going and doing hard time. And Leonard Snert's not going to suffer that. No way. No, no. I mean, and or more to the point, it's like, so what? He can do a nickel. Yeah. <laughs> he can he can do a nickel in Iron Heights and come out of that or get out early. He'll escape, <laughs> you know. And and it's like, so I like the career criminal aspect, and yet. They're not crazies. I mean, except for I would say the trickster at the extreme end. And and if you play up the pyromaniac aspect of like Heatwave, but for the most part, they're more theatrical bank robbers. Yeah. And what sets them apart from somebody like Batman's villains mm-hmm. is the rogues play nice with each other to that extent. It's, well, it's I had, even funny. with the Flash. Yeah. Like yeah. there's almost an unspoken like, no, you really don't go after the Flash's family, even though you could. It's sort of they almost have this weird like gentleman's agreement Mm -hmm. amongst themselves and the Flash. And, you know, to the point that I think this was something that came out in the, the Wally West years. It's like Wally had no problem going to a party thrown by the rogues. And getting invited, he was almost like, yeah, you were those those wacky guys I grew up with, even though many of them tried to kill him. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I mean, let's be real about this. There was murderous intent at times, but <laughs> he sort of went to this party with like, oh, you're all my uncles. I grew weird uncles or friends of my uncle that I grew up with. And he's dead. So I want to hang out with his old friends. Like, OK, but it worked. <laughs> As crazy as that sounds, it it worked. It was like, okay, that works. And I think it works. You can get these guys operating individually or as a team, a crew, because fundamentally they all have the same agenda. And it's what you laid out. They want money or whatever the object. They're thieves. They're crooks. They're going to rob something. You put Batman's villains on the same team. It's like, they don't, Scarecrow doesn't want the same thing that the Penguin wants, doesn't want the same thing that Catwoman wants, doesn't want the same thing that Joker or Two-Face wants. Even with Spider-Man, with the Sinister Six, which is a group that I love, Mm -hmm. really their only purpose of ever working together is to kill Spider-Man. But the rogues... They want money, so they'll work together to get that money, and yeah. and they have this crew together, like they've all done time together, and and that sort of relationship, 
you just don't find in other superheroes. And I think that's why they've endured so much. Well, and I think also, like, getting them all to team up was pretty much not a big deal (laughs) in Flash comic books. Whereas any other time, that's like, you know, that's the Batman 69 movie, (laughs) you know. It's an event. it's an event, but for for Flash, it's like, you it's know, nice issue. it was like, oh, yeah. And by the way, all the rogues are going to take on the Flash because of why? A bar bet. A bet <laughs> they made at the bar. <laughs> like, I was like, I love it. I love yeah. it. It's almost like it's it's almost like he's their sponsor and they have a problem and he gets involved in their wackiness. I almost feel like sometimes old issues of Flash are are secretly like episodes of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, now I want to see those guys. <laughs> I want to see all the rogues at a bar together. It's like they're like the guy, they're like the gang from It's Always Sunny and the Flash basically has to show up because he's the one sane person who's like always giving them their comeuppance at the end of an episode. <laughs> oh, that makes D Golden Glider and that makes so much sense. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> She's bird-like. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Uh, I'm writing that show. Just so you know. I'm writing that show like after I'm, we're done. <laughs> I'm watching it. I've already, you know, I've, I've paid for my subscription. So <laughs> uh, looking at the publication history, I'm going to approach this one different than other episodes and other books because we're dealing yeah. with six, seven, eight, nine characters kind of name dropped in this book. So I'm not going to give all of their histories. Instead, I'm just going to talk about their first appearances because it's different. And I think when I covered the flash in the annual episode, a couple episodes back, I mentioned that what I really loved going back and reading those early volumes of the Silver Age Flash was it felt, to me, it felt like when Stan Lee and Jack Kirby were doing Fantastic Four or Stan and Steve Ditko were doing Spider-Man in that in their first three or four years working on these projects, every issue was introducing some new element that is still around today. And The Flash was very similar to that. So The Flash himself, his first appearance was in Showcase Issue 4. His next appearance, Showcase Issue 8, is the first appearance of Captain Cold. So Captain Cold is his first sort of supervillain debuting in his second appearance. The next appearance after that, Showcase 13, you get this guy, Mr. Element. Next appearance after that, Showcase 14, you get Dr. Alchemy. Then Flash takes over Flash 105, which is the re, the, his, basically his new book, but it picks up the numbering from the old Flash volume. Mirror Master appears in the first issue of that, 105. Then the next issue after that, you get Grodd in 106, and then Pied Piper in that same issue. You get two stories, one with Grodd, one with Pied Piper. And then you get two more issues with Grodd, and then Mirror Master comes back in 109, I think. Then you have the Weather Wizard makes his first appearance in issue 110. Then Trickster shows up in Flash issue 113. Captain Boomerang debuts in Flash 117. The Top makes his appearance in Flash 122. And then a year or two later, Reverse Flash makes his first appearance in Flash 139. And then Heat Wave in Flash 140. Now, years later, like 10 years later, we'll get the first appearance of Len Snart's sister, the Golden Glider, and that's not until Flash 250. And the only reason I kind of mentioned her is because I really like what they did with her in the New 52. The New 52 Flash comics, I loved Francis Manipole and Brian Bouchard Chiletto's art style on that book. One of the things that I didn't like was they basically made all of the rogues together. Like they created them in one lab accident that gave them all of these different powers. And 
and made the powers much more internalized instead of weapons or tools, and that's not the versions of the Flash that or the rogues that I like. I prefer them to have weapons and tools. It just feels a little bit more fundamentally criminal instead of supervillain. But I did like that Golden Glider was sort of this ghosty, ethereal, kind of floating uh, above the world. I thought that was an interesting take on her powers. Not that I don't love roller skates, but... <laughs> ice skates, ice skates. Ice, ca- ice skates, yeah. Because <laughs> so. she was vicious, she would cut people with them. Mm-hmm. Like, so... So, yeah, and then, of course, you know, now she has a, she's on the TV show, so right. a different sort of power set. Yeah. Any other notes on their first appearances? No, it's just it's the, I would say the same thing of the Silver Age of, of Marvel, where a lot of their titles laid down characters that would just become persistent to that. Day. I mean, like Spider-Man had very few villains that showed up in his first couple of issues that aren't currently still his villains to this day or Fantastic Four. I think you've mentioned as well. Flash villains are they're so strong as characters they easily come back and you don't necessarily have to constantly remake villains mm-hmm. for him as a character, which is the fertile ground of what great comics have, have come out of for a long time. But it's also the very fertile ground of what terrible characters have come out of, too, is this <laughs> constant need to invent new villains. Yeah. But this idea that you can always kind of come back to this one rotating stable of villains means that every time you do, you just add to that villain and make them a better character over time. With the fact that just almost all the characters that we're covering in this issue have been on the very successful CW Flash show, it's a pretty good testament to that fact, I think. Totally. I I agree. All right, listeners, we are going to take a break to play a promo for Dr. G's show, but we'll be back in a minute with the secret origin of the rogues. Don't go away. Welcome to Astro City, a Pulp to Pixel podcast, an issue-by-issue ratings and review of Creator-owned comic book series Astro City by the writer-artist team of Kurt Fusick, Brent Anderson, and Alex Ross. You can find episodes of Welcome to Astro City and other Pulp to Pixel podcasts at pulptopixel.blogspot.com, pulptopixel.tumblr.com, through the iTunes store under the Pulp to Pixel podcasts, and through Facebook at the Pulp to Pixel podcast webpage. Let the cops get wind of me and I 
Origins issue 41 has a June 1989 cover date, but according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, the actual on-sale date was April 18th, 1989. It cost $1.50 for 48 pages and sported cover art by none other than future Hellboy creator Mike Mignola. The entire issue is one story called A Rogue by Any Other Name, and it's scripted by the Blue Devil writing team of Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohn, lettered by Janice Chang, colored by Helen Vesic, and edited by Mark Wade. The story is divided into six chapters, each with its own art team, so we're going to mention the artists when we get to the chapters. But first, Dr. G, what do you think of the cover? I actually really like the cover. I like that it's, I think it homaged the style of the covers from the Silver Age very well with like, you know, the big title piece in it. Um, But it has that trademark negative space use of black that is a Mike Mignola cover (laughs) at the same time too. So he he definitely put his stamp on it by having a lot of like, you know, the the words flasher in black and then highlight in yellow instead of what would probably be better the other way around. Mm And yet it still works pretty well, although it is backlit. So I guess that's why the case is. But um, I like it. I'm a Mignola fan, so I like any time I get to see any of his art. Yeah, I like it, too. It's striking. It's a memorable cover. I've always liked this one a lot. Uh, the characters look so cool up top. I mean, I like his style, so it's yeah, I'm, I'm partial to liking it. Well, and also, I think the nice thing about this is this is telling you you're about to get chock-a-block of story. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> they've got seven characters on the cover already. Mm-hmm. So. All right. Chapter one of A Rogue by Any Other Name was penciled by Paris Cullens with inks by Tim Dazan. In a back alley in Central City, a mysterious bolt of energy strikes the ground, revealing a small, unimpressive bald man. He shouts, free, I'm free, now vengeance will be mine, and he boasts that the world will soon fear his awesome power. People will bow before the might of... Well, this is awkward. The man can't remember his own identity. A beat cop, suspecting the man may be drunk or a vagrant of some kind, puts a hand on the man's shoulder. Our guy freaks out and punches the cop, calling him a minion of their feeble laws. He is then shocked to discover that his powerful blow did not totally destroy the cop. Whoever the stranger is, he seems to have a very overinflated sense of his own strength. The man runs down the street and the police officer pursues him, but our guy turns down a side alley and leaps onto the fire escape. The cop runs on by, not seeing our strange amnesiac climb back down the ladder and run off in the other direction. He runs across town trying to find some way to remember who he is so he can achieve the great destiny he's sure he has. He stops suddenly in front of a tailor's shop, for something about this place jars something deep in the man's psyche. Maybe it's the name Gamby on the storefront, but more likely it's the six colorful costumes adorning mannequins in the window. The man pounds on the window, breaking the glass and demanding to be let in, when the proprietor, Paul Gamby, admonishes him for not opening the door like a normal person. The stranger tells Gamby about his amnesia, but says something about the costumes in the window struck his memory. Gamby reveals that these are the costumes of local supervillains known as the Rogues. If the stranger recognizes those suits, it could mean one of the costumes belongs to him, only he can't remember which one. 
In order to help the stranger recover his lost memory, Gamby agrees to tell the origin stories of the rogues, hoping that one of these stories will sound more familiar than the others. And that is chapter one. So, first question. When you were first reading this, at this point in the story early on, do we know who this character is? Do we have enough clues you know what? I didn't. I actually, when I read this, I was sufficiently surprised at the end as to who it was. Um, there's actually another person I thought it could have been, uh, another rogue it could have been. Or this is also the time of, like, they'll just invent some weird character that, you know, I right. mean, they could have pulled a, a, you know, a, oh, God, I'm totally blanking on the name. Uh, Zany Haney and just <laughs> yeah. made up some like completely throwaway character just for this character thing. But so I was, I liked how it end came at the end. I was surprised at first. I, I was very much like, who is this guy? I mean, he was clearly had the, the superhero shtick or supervillain patter down, I should say. So that's, the, uh, I'm, I'm wondering how many people, because this is after the crisis, we've got Wally West as the right. new flash. I wonder if anybody may have suspected that this was somehow a reincarnation of Barry Allen, if he had come back somehow. But if you read his language, he certainly doesn't sound like that. He's sure that he's a powerful person who's got this, you know, important destiny. He's going to, you know, he, he calls the cop a minion of their laws. He's certainly an outsider. There's something weird right. about this guy. It's like, yeah, yeah he, he couldn't be the flat. Barry Allen wouldn't talk this way. So, um, A few other notes I have just about this section. The mm-hmm. tailor in question, one of our main characters in this, his name is Paul Gamby. He is a tailor for the rogues. He is the brother of the character Peter Gamby, who made Black Lightning's costume. Uh, ah. Peter Gamby was kind of the principal supporting character in the Black Lightning comic that Tony Isabella and Trevor Von Eden did. Ah, Peter, okay. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. These guys are supposed to be brothers. They both have the same profession, even though I don't know if they ever actually interacted in any comic. I don't know if there's a time we ever see them together. I don't think so. Yeah. I, not that I know of, but I'm not as encyclopedic a knowledge of comics as I would <laughs> I would pretend to be. <laughs> actually, uh, one of the things I, I had to say, comments on this one was that I really enjoyed was that this idea of someone who makes them their costumes and the sort of the tailor to the superhero supervillain set mm-hmm. is something I've actually really liked the idea of and something that I've seen appear in other times as well during the Straczynski run of Spider-Man on Amazing Spider-Man they had a very similar a character came to Spider-Man who basically did the same thing. He offered his services for like superhero clothing. But um, one of my favorite books as a kid was the, or not really a kid, but yeah, as younger, was a Further Adventures of Batman. I, I was just thinking, I know that book. I love that book. And I know the exact story you're thinking of. The, the Mike Resnick story, yep. Neutral Ground, yep. where basically you see this guy runs a tailor shop and the Batman rogues and Batman himself mm-hmm. all come to him for like tailoring of their, their suits and costumes. And I absolutely love that. I, I literally would watch read an entire like issue of any comic book built around that concept. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like a, well, to sort of plug my Astro City series, Welcome to Astro City, that is a perfect Astro City plot right there. Like, yeah. oh, totally. What, what's happening beside the main superhero, supervillain story? I love that neutral ground. I was thinking of that, too, as I was reading this. And I was thinking, like, yeah, I, I don't know if – maybe I'm misremembering it, but I don't think he actually said the Riddler. He just said he was working on a costume and he needed to have 88 question marks exactly. And he would count. He would yeah. count it. He'd giggle about it, too. Yeah. So, yeah. No, he was definitely the Riddler. He was yeah. definitely the G- Gorsham Riddler. Exactly, yeah. Um, 
Gamby has the rogue's costumes in his window. Yeah. I I was thinking about that too. I'm like, so anytime they break out, you totally just stake out his Exactly. Yeah, just okay, they might head there, put some cops in a squad car in front of that store and just wait. That would draw a lot of attention. I was like, would it be in poor taste? But this is a city that has a flash museum, so I don't Well, and I think there's a certain level of like and I think this goes back to this idea of like the gentleman's agreement we discussed in the past, but you don't hear a lot of like how much everybody hates the rogues. Yeah. I'm sure there's probably great stories out there about how intricate moral tales about how one of the rogues killed someone but is now reformed later and Flash has to wrestle with his morality over. But, you know, for the most part, you don't hear that. You know, it's a lot of like... Oh, yeah, they murdered all those people with that freezing ray. But, hey, it's all in fun and games. Mm. It's it's just a bank robbery, you know. <laughs> so it's it's kind of a weird – I think it's almost as if the people of Central City, if they don't all agree that it's completely ridiculous, it would actually be the most terrifying place to live. Like I think that's generally what you have to do with any superhero world. Is the citizens who live there either have to have like unwavering faith in their heroes – Or just assume that everybody's in on the agreement that it's all ridiculous silliness and nobody should really get hurt. (laughs) Yeah. There's something very old-fashioned, like early 20th century. They're like celebrity gangsters, like an Al Capone or a babyface Nelson that you kind of – you want to see them. Or a Jesse James. Ah, that might come up in a few minutes. (laughs) Uh, just before we get to that next part of the story, mm-hmm. what did you think of the art in this section? Like I said, this is by Paris Cullens. Cullens was the artist on Blue Devil, which was being written by these guys, Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohn. Uh, so it was nice that they kind of brought him over to this one. He's got a cool, it's a very cartoonish kind of style. I like his art. I kind of wish he would have been used on one of the later chapters so that we could see him doing something with the rogues in costume. Yeah, I like Paris Cullen's art as well. Um, he did a number of different books at this time, and I think I liked him on Blue Beetle for sure. I just actually recently got the showcase of that and I was reading through those. But for me with Paris Cullen's, I always felt that like he was just like one step away from being a really awesome manga artist. And just needed to put down that like extra nickel because I feel there's so much like in some of his line work, especially in his faces and the sort of like his his tendency towards big eyes. I was like, oh, you're just pushing a little more into a little more manga look and you would actually like hit the perfect sweet spot of your like art skills. Huh. Um, there was um the I think it was I want to say Tom Yates who was on Manhunter at the time, had the very same similar thing. It was like, it was almost like they had like a really cool manga artist and they never knew it, yeah. <laughs> like sitting in there. And I just wish he had pushed that a little. But yeah, I like him. I think he's kind of perfect for this. I would say the my other favorite artist for the Rogues would have to be uh, Scott Collins. Yeah, he was. Because I feel he can do. During the Jeff Johns run, yeah. When he can do a very serious stuff, he also has this style that really lends itself to that sort of like cartoon silliness that, you know, some of these stories basically need, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to, to be able to sort of palette them. Yeah. There was only one thing about the story, about the script in this first chapter that I didn't like, and it's it's a minor complaint, if anything, but they really play up this amnesiac character's pomposity and his claims, and then yeah. undercutting it by not knowing his name. 
they do that joke like four times in two pages, yeah. and I, I think it's a little bit much. They laid on a little thick for just like the first seven pages. Again, that's a minor complaint. It's still funny, but it's I think they could have hit that joke one or two fewer times. I think part of it, too, is – and this is – as I read it again today, I was like two chapters in and just even through the second chapter and I was already like this is his solution to someone who's pretty much suffering some sort of mental illness mm-hmm. or brain injury is let's just show him costumes because you get this undercurrent of I'm not helping this guy. I really just want to make a sale Yeah, <laughs> from, from Gamby. So it's kind of like Gamby <laughs> – I think you should really be calling a hospital at this point. <laughs> like, or at least the cops, he did break your front window. True. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So, uh, any other thoughts on this first chapter? Uh, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's all set up. Yeah. It's all set up. It so is. it's, it's all set up for a joke punchline that's coming down later down the line on this one. So then are you ready to tell us chapter two? Chapter two. All right. So back to our idea of a celebrity heroes. Um, so chapter two, Gamby brings out the costume of the trickster as a way to see if he can jog the memory of his bald headed amnesiac, which he tells the backstory of Jesse James or really Giuseppe, Giovanni Giuseppe, who would later go on to become the trickster. So we're introduced to Jesse James as a young man where he is a part of the flying Jesse's a acrobatic um, high wire troupe for Traveling Circus. Um, I don't believe they named the circus specifically, so um, probably not Haley's Circus. <laughs> Although I think that's like the only circus in the DC universe, so everybody's part of Haley's Circus at some point if you're a circus kid performer. And we're introduced to the Jesse James's early obsession with Jesse James himself, the outlaw, and the idea of the celebrity outlaw. He was very in, intrigued with it. We're then shown some of his training as a acrobat, something that will come into play later in his supervillain career. And we also see that he's got a father with a pretty inappropriate sense of humor and a pension for the ladies at the wrong times, where during practice of a intricate aerial maneuver, uh, his father is momentarily distracted by the showgirls riding elephants and nearly drops Jesse. We now see that, you know, he's growing up with a kind of a neglectful father who doesn't really keep his safety in mind all the time. This leads Jesse to invent. So this is, I, I think, a nice little turn on revealing how smart this character is. Uh, his airwalker shoes, which allow him to perform these aerial feats without fear of falling because he can now basically walk on air with these shoes. He becomes a big success and gains the pride of his father, but wants more. And he wants to pull off more tricks and more more grand things, at which point he decides that his goal to do that will get him some money. So he invents the identity of the trickster. And we are then treated to him on one of his early capers, where he is, looks like I believe this is, should be Metropolis, is making a break for it through the air, singing a song about his air walking, when he is actually nearly stopped by Booster Gold. They have their classic sort of back and forth, superhero, supervillain, back and forth. Both of them, I think, being both very new to the scene at this. At which point the trickster is living up to his name, is able to trick Booster Gold by convincing him that he will give up his ways, hands over the loot, but instead, in what I would say is true uh, Roadrunner Coyote method, is filled with a 10-ton Acme anvil. And it even says Acme on it. At which point we see that... The trickster is very much, you know, he's the the safe version of the Joker and the Riddler for, I think, the brighter hero set. 
and we get him on his first caper. And that pretty much ends that first section. And this chapter was penciled by Grant Meehan and inked by Ian Aiken and Brian Garvey. My first thought, the second-person narration is unusual but interesting. When Gamby starts saying, you're this James Jesse character growing up in the circus, uh, it's an interesting way of framing it to kind of put us in the head of this villain. Interesting, I can't think of many comics that would do it this way, but I like it. Yeah, yeah. That whole, like, talking to you in the second person, sort of you, 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 it reminds me of reading old Choose Your Own Adventures, Mm -hmm. where they're constantly referring to you, the reader, to put you into that role. Um, So this is, I think, I think it's interesting to comment that this is a definite, like, continuity change post-crisis, because they're really showing some of his, you know, we're not seeing him go up against the Flash in his origin we're seeing him go up against Booster Gold, which I believe post-crisis is something that kind of set up him more as a, a Booster Gold blue devil villain. So this part of the story actually confused me the first time because I was assuming that this confrontation between Booster and Trickster was his first superhero outing. But it's yeah. not. This part of the story takes place at the same time that oh. Gamby is telling that story because yeah. he gets this sort of mental impulse towards the end and then he's going to go off and find Pied Piper in the next chapter. So and that confused me too. I had to kind of like reread it, and I was like, "Why is his first appearance fighting Booster Gold?" Oh, it's not. This part takes place separately, apart from that. Oh yeah, you have to. It's it's one of the things to kind of that gets a little tricky on this issue is that it's this isn't just like a trip down memory lane, but the the rogues themselves have actual agency throughout the story. Right. It's not just a series of like stories about them. There is a secondary plot that we'll Mm -hmm. see developing of the rogues coming together, and this is the first time we get it. And I think I think the transition is a little bit confusing. Um, Yeah. No. I I've read this a couple of times and. I, it's that last part mm-hmm. where it's kind of like I kind of like glaze over his joke a little at yeah. the end. And it's like, oh, wait, no, he's actually explaining. Right. <laughs> and so they actually used a little good economy of space there, I'd say, yeah. with what they're doing. But, yeah, no, this is because I, I kept every time I read it, I was like, why are they showing him going up against the Flash? And I remember the Blue Devil special that mm-hmm. came out before the series. He played a role in that. And at the time, they really made it look out like that was his post-crisis first appearances. So um, that could have been just me misreading it again as well because it's been a while since I've read it. But I always got this impression that they kind of like recast him as a little bit more of other people's rogues as well. And I'm okay with making him more of a utility villain. I might even like it better. He has never been, you know, apart from when Mark Hamill is playing him, he's never really been one of my favorite Flash rogues. I do see him as a lot of times like a second-rate Joker or Riddler. And you mentioned like the Haley Circus connection. If you linked his childhood to Dick Grayson's in any way, like it wouldn't even have to be like an obvious, like they grew up together as bitter rivals. But if Trickster was a Nightwing villain... I think that would be a lot more interesting. I, oh. I think they would be gr- really good foils for each other. No, I'd, I'd like that too. Because, I mean, I find like when you have – especially with new characters too, if you can have like a little migration from other people's villains, mm-hmm. especially villains who don't make as much sense anymore as for why they are with them. Um, right. 
I think this was something, and we'll talk about it a little in a little later. But like the fact that when they finally introduced Captain Boomerang into the CW sort of universe, they put him up against the Arrow. Yeah, because that made way more sense. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of like Slipknot versus <laughs> Firestorm. It's like you know he'd make a really great Arrow villain, right? right. <laughs> you know, like because yes. he's kind of the same power level. So right. some of these but, guys just don't fit. But. Yeah. And we don't see, we do see him escaping from Booster Gold in this. We don't see him fighting the Flash. And it's something I was going to mention later on, but I'll I'll bring it up now. The Flash does not appear in this issue. Yeah, I. He only shows up on the cover. mm -hmm. Which I think is nice too, because that's a great, like, strength of the character sort of situation again. You know, they can run their own series without having to actually be, you know, at no time are we really given this sort of like our only purpose for being is to give trouble to the flash. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, this is where I liked his interaction with booster gold. It's, it shows that how much they all have legs beyond that one superhero that they're associated with. Yeah. It just, it surprised me. Like not even in the flashbacks, like, I mean, we don't see Flash catching them at the end, but we, like even in the flashbacks, we don't see them going up against him. I actually, I reached out, I messaged Dan Mishkin on Facebook and I was just like, can you, was that your decision, you and Gary, or was that an editorial thing? And he got back to it. He said he didn't remember. He thought maybe, as you said, using the Flash would have been just more of a distraction taking away from the characters, but it also could have been an editorial suggestion. And one of the last issues I covered was the secret origin of Gorilla Grodd, the mm-hmm. Flash does not appear in that story either. Yeah. So I'm wondering if that was an editorial thing because Barry Allen was dead and gone. And yeah. West, at this point, he wasn't going up against a lot of these rogues. Like you said, some of these were being turned into heroes or uh, they were kind of changing paths or they were being used in other books, as we'll see with Captain Boomerang. But there's this weird, it feels like there was maybe a conscious separation of these bad guys from the Flash at this time. Well, I think it might have, my guess is it's probably because of, you know, they've just killed Barry, like, just a few years prior to this. And they're really kind of propping up what, you know, the arguably amazing Wally West run that's in its first outings at this moment, at this time. So I think that might be it. I think they might be because every one of these characters, I think, except for Weather Wizard and Grodd is going to reform in the next few years Mm -hmm. within the Flash titles. I mean, Jesse James will eventually go on to work for like the government. Like, I think he works for the DEO at one point or Argus. The only one who goes straight, but not because he chose to, would be <laughs> Captain Boomerang, right. which which to this day, I still love him for that reason. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. <laughs> He's the sarcastic Australian guy that you need <laughs> on every show post-Crocodile Dundee, you know? Uh, one bit before we move on to the next section. I really like when we see Trickster singing his little song. There's a bit of fourth wall breaking at the end. He says, Oh, I flew through the air with the greatest unease till I thought it all over and came up with these. My airwalker shoes were undreamed of by sages, and I sang in one song what took Gamby two pages. So <laughs> basically just summing up in that little verse what he'd already been what we'd all been already been saying. So Yeah, pretty much. Yep. Uh I liked this story. Like I said, Trickster has never been one of my favorite Flash rogues, but for some reason they decide to put 
I think he gets the most attention in the story than any of the other rogues, and they do a good job with it. They make him sympathetic. I like his backstory in the circus and, and the sort of dark, like the flip side of the coin to Dick Grayson's loving family. Here we see his dad didn't care about him, almost killed him by accident just because he was staring at some half-naked women riding elephants, which, that's eh, a nice page. But yeah, it is, I liked this little chapter. I liked getting to know a little bit more about this character in this scene. Yeah, and, and I like that um, – I think the Hamill performance of the character was really – I think kind of plays up his craziness. And this one is like sort of – he's more of just kind of a deranged comedian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's it's not as sort of like – you know, it's definitely not Joker. I'm going to cut off my own face and then just wear it again. Right. It's sort of like crazy, which, you know, that's <laughs> less said better. Right. <laughs> but but – um, but yeah, no, I, I like it. I uh, he, not my favorite rogue though. I have to say though, but still, yeah. like I, I'm, I like it a lot. So I guess chapter three then, eh? Yep. Chapter three is penciled by Howard Simpson with inks by Anthony Van Bruggen. Gamby tries showing another costume to his amnesiac customer. This one, the green and polka dot garb of the Pied Piper. Unlike many supervillains, the Pied Piper, whose real name is Hartley Rathaway, was born wealthy. He was also born deaf and lived without the ability to hear for several years. Once medical technology caught up with his family riches, the doctors performed surgery to fix Hartley's hearing. After that, Hartley became obsessed with music and sound. He was a lazy and lousy student in school, but the one area he did master was that of sonics. He created musical instruments that could produce tones and frequencies with hypnotic effects. He used this power to convince teachers to go easy on him, to seduce women into loving him, and eventually to battle the forces of justice as the costumed Pied Piper. While Gamby tells the story, the trickster roams Central City looking for the Pied Piper. He follows the sound of music to Hartley's current hideout, where the Piper is playing the bagpipes and frantically trying to control a horde of tiny floating musical notes. The trickster helps Pied Piper corral the smaller notes, but there is one massive note in the warehouse that won't leave, or dissipate, as Piper says. He's tried to shut the sound up, but it won't go away. And what's more distressing is that the note keeps following Pied Piper everywhere he goes, like a pet. Trickster says he'll help Piper with this weird problem, but first they've got other business. Someone they both know has come back into town, and every time he shows up, he embarrasses the rogues. So Trickster wants to get this guy first. Piper agrees, and the two of them leave the hideout, but the giant note is sad to be left alone and starts to follow, even busting through the wall of the warehouse to pursue its master. And that is chapter three. I really liked Howard Simpson's art in this chapter. It might be my favorite art in the whole book. I I don't know what it is. I I just, I liked his line work and the details in this. I liked it too. I felt there was almost like a there was almost a golden age quality mm, to yeah. some of especially in that like the one that's like the eight panel grid. Yeah. I felt that was like straight out of like an old golden age book and how it's framed and some of the art. So there's almost a little bit of a throwback quality as well, but 
this whole like living notes mm-hmm. and like the, that the notes are actually these like solid objects. It's, it, I mean, this is that's pure like Silver Age, yeah. like you know, nonsenseness. And I, I, there's a part of me that loves it, but there's also a part of me that's like, okay, really? <laughs> it's very <laughs> old school. It's very throwback, yeah. kind of goofy and silly. Mm-hmm. Which is weird because. One of my favorite things about the Flash is like what a science hero he is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's as as someone who is you know as is a science teacher and has been a science teacher. It's like old science based heroes have always been one of my favorite things. Especially like you know, like Metal Men. I used to love Metal Men just because they would give you like chemistry facts. <laughs> you know, and I love Flash because. There's lots of like physics and science facts in him. And then he goes up against a guy who's supposed to have really like science based powers. Yeah. You know, it's all supposed to be like super usages of sonics, which, you know, there's tons of really cool stuff you can come up with. But then he creates these like solid notes, <laughs> you know, like I was like, um, they're like run amuck minions that they're like they're causing more trouble and you yeah. gotta like sweep them up and everything. Yeah, I agree. Like it doesn't feel consistent with the tone of the rest of the story, like with the other rogues. And it's not my favorite usage of Pied Piper's powers and his gimmick. No. The part of me that likes that old fashioned kind of hokiness does get a kick of it, but you're right. I think that too feels like this feels like a golden age villain. This feels yeah. like somebody like the like the music meister from Batman the Brave and the Bold or something. Yeah. Or the fiddler. Yeah, yeah, somebody along those lines. This is a lot more, yeah, the fiddler's power set, I feel. Uh, and when you mentioned that the art has a little bit of a Golden Age feel too, especially with that one page with the, the eight-panel layout, I think Howard Simpson had done a lot with Roy Thomas, maybe on Young All-Stars. Yeah, I, I think so. It, but, I mean, he was certainly kind of used to playing in that field of of going back to those sort of golden age characters and tropes as he was doing these issues. So, I mean, it, it's funny, like the part of me that's an animal lover, I like the idea that this giant note that they call the blat for some reason um, won't go away. And it's like following them like a lost puppy or something. Oh, yeah. No, I, I mean, there's there's a there's a like infectious adorableness to this whole sequence. You know, which is so funny to undercut the fact that, like, basically he shows that he basically has a sonic roofie. Yeah. In the in like the first panel of him showing powers, it's like, oh, and with with this harmonica, I can hypnotize ladies. It's like, yeah, that's a statement that doesn't end without like you know some sort of like trial (laughs) afterwards. And yet, ironically, we would see in a year or two, or I don't remember when when he actually came out, but uh, later on. We would see that uh, Pied Piper, I guess, he's a twofer because he represents the LGBTQ community and also the physically disabled community. Just as uh, he's a deaf character and a gay character, both of those things fascinate. I, I would, I want them to play up more of those aspects. Uh, certainly, at least, at least one, if not both of them. Although I think the the hearing loss. Is definitely something I don't think they play up a lot. Um, although they did appear in the Flash series. He does have, like, cochlear implants that mm-hmm. they show him taking out at one point. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember if it was... Maybe if it was just in the New 52, but it was certainly played up, I think. Or I don't... I, I, I think I'm crossing my memory of this. Well, in, in, which, the new- in, in which one of the stories is he is hardly involved with Flash's boss, with Barry's boss? That's in the new 52. Okay. Because I just read the um, Flash Rebirth issue, and 
Sing is in it, yeah. and Sing invites Barry to dinner, and he says, "Is this Hartley's idea?" Yeah, you're right. okay. I like that yeah, issue so, too. That flash rebirth that was good. Yeah. Um, I'm actually, I'm actually liking them all across the board so far. The only uh, one I didn't like was Titans. I didn't like the. Titans. Uh, you know, I haven't finished reading it, so yeah. I'll, I was. I don't think I, I was as big a fan of the art as much. I, I, I really wasn't. That, that was. A I, I felt it was like. It's art style that's hearkening to the things I think were wrong with like New Fifty Two, but yeah. but I'm I'm hoping the story wins out, so I'm going to read it. But it's I mean Dan Abnett wrote that he also wrote the Aquaman Rebirth, which is one of my favorites. So it's I think which, my problems with it lean towards the art and just not being connected to the characters. Yeah. So Pied Piper is a character that I like. I've always liked him. I I like the gimmick. Something about the costume. It's goofy, but I like it. I like that he has the. I, I liked in the New Fifty Two where it's like, okay, he can go either way. He can be the villain, and he can hang out with the rogues. But he's in this relationship with the not the chief of police, but certainly the captain of the Metro Crimes Unit. And Barry is kind of conflicted and pulled in two different directions with regarding the character. I think there's a lot of room for exploration with this character. And I know that he definitely, during the, the Johns run, he was certainly more of a reformed, trying to be a good guy. I, I like the character, too. I've always I, I really just like the fact that my experience with him was when he got written as basically one of Barry's best friends. Yeah. Or not Barry, sorry. Wally. Um, Wally's best friends. And he, he became really to the point that, you know, Wally's the person he comes out to. Mm-hmm. And is like, or at least one of the important street people in his life. I think that he that he told about it, and it was just like from a guy who went spent a lot of time trying to, at the very least, hurt your uncle and you, to the guy you come out to later when you're both adults is like I thought it was a really touching, touching thing about the character. And I and since then I've always been I've had a place in my heart as him being like. The Flash's buddy at that, at that point from from that boy. So to see him as a rogue is kind of weird for me, actually. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, but you're so good later. I can understand that. I mean, I what you could almost do. I don't know where this comparison came from, but I kind of think of like Spider-Man and the Prowler. Yeah, something like that. Oh, the Prowler started off as a rogue, but then, like, really, he wasn't a bad guy. He just had to make some crappy decisions because of his circumstance, and then sort of became a good guy, and they could team up from time to time. And that would be mm-hmm. an interesting way to play the character, too. So, Yeah. Any other thoughts on this chapter before we move on? No, no. I uh, I like the art, and, um, you know, I think it was... Uh, um, I, I think it's just personal in the sense that, like, none of the things that are going to make the the Piper really super interesting appear yet because they haven't appeared yet in continuity. Right. So he's kind of still that sort of he's just sort of a standard rogue, you know. OK, folks, we are going to take another break, but we will yeah. be back in a minute. Hey, everybody, I'm Paul Spataro. I don't know if you know me, but I'm a regular on Back to the Bins along with my friends, Dr. Bill Robinson. Hello. And Mr. Scott Gardner. Hey, how's it going? Andy's been asking us for a promo for the show for the longest time, and Bill has been writing it for the longest time. Bill, you got that promo written yet? Uh... Okay, so, anyway, what we do is we review three comic books. We try to do it every week. Usually it's a Marvel, a DC and a Captain Canuck book for Scott. So, 
Tune in every week to Back to the Bins to listen to our show. You can find us at twotruefreaks.com. Chapter four, we are still trying to discover who is this bald man, this very temperamental bald man. (laughs) And Gamby again is throwing a couple of costumes his way. This time the duo of Captain Cold and Heatwave. At which point Gamby, once again in his very brief style, lays out the basic origin of Captain Cold, where we are introduced to Leonard Snart, who Gamby, I think, very funnily um, states, is already has two strikes against him for his name. Um, and he's planning his criminal career, and he does not want to be someone who robs convenience stores. So gets his hand on an unpublished scientific article, and from reading that article, discovers a way that he can use particle accelerator in a unique way to commit crimes. This leads him to break into a cyclotron laboratory (laughs) with his ray gun that he's created. When he breaks in, he then breaks into the particle accelerator itself where he places the gun in the accelerator because he's going to use the radiation from the accelerator to power the gun. The gun was affected, but not quite in the way he had dreamed of. Instead, it created a cold ray, which we'll get into the physics of that way later. (laughs) And thus he started his career as Captain Cold. Now... Gamby makes a, a little comment about being turned into a human popsicle, at which point our bald amnesiac is, I don't think that's really the way to go. Gamby gets out the costume of Heatwave, the white asbestos costume, and begins to tell the backstory of Mick Rory, the man who had become known as the supervillain Heatwave. Um, we are treated to a school trip that Rory went as a young man, and where they were at a meatpacking factory, where he inadvertently, while sneaking away from the rest of the class, which should never do, um, gets trapped in one of the meat lockers, where he nearly freezes to death. He then does eventually escape and is released, where he then becomes obsessed with fire and heat, becoming a bit of a deranged nutcase. We later see that he joins the traveling carnival as a fire eater, but would eventually get his hands on a flame gun and thus become his career as Heatwave, often teamed up with Captain Colt. Mr. Green Christmas, I'm Mr. Sun. After this little brief sort of synopsis of his origin, we're treated to 
a very quick um, story where we see now Heatwave is, for the most part, reformed. He is, in fact, helping out the local um, Central City Fire Brigade as they're taking on a fire in a, looks like an apartment building, and he himself races in to help. So we actually see a character who previously basically was a pyromaniac now running into burning buildings to help people and save people. In fact, he's even saving a small family whose mom desperately looks like Aunt May in this one panel. We then see that he even has come up with a special device that he is designed to help put out the fire, uh, which it does, thus pulling the all the fire in and stopping it and getting him the praise of the fire department and the people around. So he's definitely doing the work of a hero. Just though after he gets his praise... He comes across Captain Cold, who's also been looking for him. And you get this definitely, uh, you get the impression that, you know, one of them is not so happy. The other one has gone straight. And Captain Cold uh, quickly subdues him with his freezeway. And as you can see, he's assembled with the other rogues that we've seen so far, Trickster and Pied Piper, to go after whatever has been calling to all of them. So this is the intersection now between the previous chapters and what's currently going on with them. And that's where we're left off. So now our almost all of our rogues have been gathered together into one location. There's just a few left, but two more chapters to go until we finally figure out what's going on in this crazy story. <laughs> the, uh, the penciler, Ian Carr, I looked him up, and mm-hmm. according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics... This was his only work for either of the big two companies. All of his other credits were at Malibu. Now, Mike's Amazing World doesn't have the greatest inventory when it comes to like the smaller things in the indie books, so maybe yeah. he's done other stuff in that. I don't know. But the art is fine. It's I, I don't have a problem with it. It's certainly it's a little bit more cartoonish than even some of the others. I felt it complements well with Colin's art in the first one, mm-hmm. but is lower quality. Yeah, it's similar to Paris Collins' art in the first chapter, and I think it's similar to Don Simpson's art that we'll see in the last chapter. But yeah. in between, we get these kind of weird little things that kind of break it up, and it, it looks less uniform. Yeah. Of these two characters, we often see them as a package deal a lot because mm-hmm. it's easy to think of fire and ice. They go together, haha. But <laughs> I've never really been interested in that kind of dynamic or duality of these two characters. I really like Captain Cold mostly because of the things that Jeff Johns did with him. Heatwave, I've never really cared for. I, I think it's interesting that he kind of reformed this much and was actually like helping to put out fires like as an anti-arsonist. But he's of all of the Flash's rogues, he is by far the one that I am least interested in. I honestly find him interesting when he's a mad dog killer. Yeah, actually, that would be like yeah. If he's if he's completely like batshit crazy, then I'm I'm a little bit more interested. But I mean, I think uh, Dominic Purcell's performance of him on Flash and then Legends of Tomorrow as basically oh by the way, I am a pyromaniac and an arsonist. Like you know what my favorite thing is to do burning people. <laughs> <laughs> like and you know he's got a flamethrower gun. Yeah. It's there's just a point where you're like, you know, I mean, it's as bad as Captain Cole's gun, like Captain Cole's gun should, you know, basically be killing people all the time. It it's rarely should be, you know, if you encase someone's head in ice, they're dead. Mm-hmm. 
Like they can't breathe. So anytime he's frozen anyone fully, it's he should be killing him. But, you know, once again, this goes back to, you know, you think about it. The first two rogues are pretty tame, but we're now getting into two people who basically are robbers who carry guns and guns that, you know, very much can kill. Yeah. So this is now still played light. But, you know, we're now getting into the much more sinister aspects because you could see the trickster doing non-lethal stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. And while there's something skeevy about the ability to manipulate people's minds with music, there's also there could be this sort of I'm not murderous. But when you have a flamethrower gun and a freeze gun and you team up to rob stuff, there's a certain level of like, well, we have guns. Right. We, we're going to shoot people. That's not good. <laughs> so. So they're an interesting pair. I mean, they're a Butch and Sundance in many ways. You know, throw in Golden Glider and you've got your little bit of Bonnie and Clyde as well. Yeah, and and thinking about Captain Cold, I mean, they've... They've done their best to make him. He he is the leader. He is the most hardline. He was the first. He appeared in Flash's second appearance. Mm-hmm. He is a character that I want to see more of, but I've got to address the thing about the TV show. I really do not like how he has been used in the Flash TV show and in Legends of Tomorrow. I don't think that actor is a good fit for the character. I also really don't like the way the character was written in the Flash to me he's got to be he's got to be an older character with uh, more of a grizzled like a, a sense of gravitas again robert de niro or tom sizemore from the movie heat like just look at you and can scare you and make you sit down and that's that's not what i get from wentworth miller that's the worst kind of cw casting when they compromise a character just to get an actor who would also be a good underwear model Um, which they do a lot, and so far it's worked, I think, 90% of the time. Um, But when it doesn't, and I don't think it works for Captain Cold. Now, I know a lot of people love Wentworth Miller as Captain Cold, and he's a brand new character. I was about to say, I'm I'm amongst that group. So so I'm I'm sure I am in the minority, but I don't like the way he's playing. Minority, crazy person, it's it's all the same thing, I guess, (laughs) at this point. Um, I, you know, I can understand. You know, Shag I, would just say I'm wrong and leave it at that. No. So. <laughs> I, I try to be diplomatic, more diplomatic than Shag from time to time on this I'm, one. Um, no, I, I, I have to say uh, on the other end, I'm, I liked Wentworth Miller's. I, I actually like his overacting style for the character. It plays to the idea of the guy being into the theatrics of what he does. And it's part of the sort of the dodge of the blind. But I really like him as this sort of like consummate criminal is the way he's written and almost like a gunslinger as well. There's a certain amount of like I feel like gunslinger to the way he's done on the TV show and mm-hmm. how he approaches things, especially in his first few issue episodes where he looked at the Flash as like the big gun now. And he, you know, if he's going to stay the big gun in crime, he's got to kind of be able to take on the big gun in the the law enforcement end, which was the Flash. And and so I felt there was that very much like that sort of like gunfighter escalation between the two. But I, I can understand some there have been definitely complaints about the character um, or at least Wentworth Miller's portrayal of the character. I just think they're always crazy or wrong, but <laughs> I also know I'm being biased. <laughs> no, that's fine. I 
it's fine if if you like it, if it works for it, then cool because you're getting certainly a lot. I mean, I know he was the breakout character. That's why they wanted to keep the actor around, oh, yeah. and they can't have him in every episode of the Flash. So they made a new show for him. Yeah, um, pretty much him. Him so. and uh, well, and I think he plays off very well having Dominic Purcell with him, who they've already have years of prior acting together. So it's right. like. You know, like they already came in as this nice and it's nice, too. It's like they came in as this package deal in a way, the two of them together, having both played characters who were criminal fugitives in their previous Mm -hmm. going together. So it was, you know, it was kind of a lot of like, oh, well, we kind of cast well and got them to do stuff. They were already showed themselves to be pretty good at doing in the first place. So. So, yeah, I like him. He's got a bit of a a spike from Buffy feel for me. I've always liked that sort of like mildly sarcastic, stick their thumb in the eye of authority sort of character, but still sort of does right in the end. I can see that and sort of treats the world like his stage and like yeah. wants to command all the attention. I, I can see that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Um, any other thoughts on this chapter? The one thing actually I did like about it is that and and I think even Gamby sort of makes a comment on it, but is like, you know, Snart has to be wicked smart, as does – and think about all of his The Rogues so far we've seen, except for I think Heatwave, who I don't think made his own gun. Mm-hmm. I think that was given to him. Snart like steals a scientific paper and, you know, as of, you know, most of the writings, he's a career criminal. So it's not like he, he went to college to study nuclear physics. But steals a paper about particle accelerators and totally comes up with an idea for a ray gun that he inadvertently turns into a freeze gun. You know, like, I mean, that's just like either luck on top of luck or he was way wicked smarter than thought. Or the air shoes the trickster makes. Once again, another person who you don't expect has gone to MIT or, or, you know, or Caltech or something yet is coming up with this amazingly compact flying shoe. You know, in his spare time at the circus. And I think that's why in the New 52, Manipal and Buccioletto decided to create a sort of scientific accident that gives all of the guys these powers that are internalized. Because when you really scrutinize these characters, it's hard to reconcile how these uneducated criminals and dregs would create these things that... Honestly, like any one of these weapons or devices could change the world. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And no, also like... be sold and monetized for millions of dollars. They would never need to steal again if they just patented these devices and oh, sold I mean... them to private industry or to the government or anything. Yeah. So, D- yeah. DOD would like give you fistfuls of taxpayer money for those airwalker shoes. Sure, yeah. The next one that we come up, when we talk about the weather wizard, if you could control the weather, holy God, go to Africa and just change the entire continent. Or even better, like, if you really want to be sort of, you know, just wait for hurricane season and farm out your services to coastal cities to divert hurricanes. Yeah. It's (laughs) like... You know, it's like, it's like why are you stealing, you idiots? You've got this technology. You can make I, money off of it. So You know, there's a um a year one annual of Superman when they were doing all the year one annuals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's uh it's beautiful. It's uh Jean Paul Leon art. And it's kind of his first meeting with all of the Justice League members 
before their first actual Justice League adventure. So he meets with Hal, he meets John Jones, he meets Aquaman, and he meets the Flash. And when he meets the Flash, they fight Weather Wizard. And they comment about this at the very end is like, for a couple hundred thousand dollars of money in a bank, he was willing to cause millions of dollars of property damage <laughs> by dropping a snowstorm on Central City in the middle of summer. Yeah. And Flash even's like, yeah, my villains are kind of weird that way. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And he just sort of like says, yeah, what are you going to do about it? Right. All right. Yeah, the, my last little note was I liked, and you mentioned it, the fact that Candy's like, his name is Leonard Snart. So he was going to have a tough life no matter what. Yeah. Already two strikes against you, buddy. Yeah. I mean, Mick Rory, that's a kind of like, hi, my name is Mick Rory. I'm going to beat you up in a bar. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to assume he's Irish. (laughs) Yes. Yes. You ready for chapter five? I am all ready for chapter five. (laughs) All right. Chapter 5 is illustrated by Trevor Von Eden, and it begins with Paul Gamby telling the amnesiac that he couldn't possibly be the Mirror Master or the Top, as both of them are currently dead. But maybe he's Captain Boomerang. Gamby tells the man that Digger Harkness, a criminal who customized boomerangs produced by the Wiggins Game Company, the amnesiac doesn't recognize the feel of the boomerang or the gaudy look of Digger's costume or the hat that Gamby insists Digger wore just to cover the fact that he was balding. She said, Do you come from a land down under? A women go and men Can't you hear, can't you hear the thunder? Next, Gamby tells the story of the Weather Wizard. Mark Martin was on a train bound for prison when he escaped and fled to his brother Clyde's house. When he arrived, however, he discovered his brother dead of an apparent heart attack. He also found Clyde's notes on a device that could control the weather. Mark completes his brother's research and fashions a wand-shaped weather manipulator, and thus becomes the Weather Wizard. The stranger knows that he's none of these rogues, but he wonders why they all operate out of Central City. Gamby mentions the supervillain population is a direct response to the city's famous superhero, the Flash. At the mention of the speedster's name, the stranger recalls exactly who he is, the Flash's greatest villain, and this causes him to panic. He tells Gamby the other rogues are coming for him. He says Gamby has never made a costume for him yet, but now he needs one. And that ends Chapter 5. We'll find out how the story ends in a few minutes, but first, what did you think of this part? First off, the entire Captain Boomerang is handled in three panels of exposition. (laughs) Yeah. And actually, really two panels of exposition. And we never actually see him as a character. So I wonder if that has to do with a little bit of his Suicide Squad or if that's just a timing. Because, I mean, this is, like I said, pretty chock-a-block at this point. And Mm -hmm. Captain Boomerang is someone who's still pretty much making the rounds at this point outside of other people's 
you know, I mean, he's a Suicide Squad member uh, through a lot of this era. So, you know, we're already seeing him elsewhere. So I think that might be another reason why he might not have gotten it. And did they cover any of the new Suicide Squad in the Suicide Squad issue? Hardly any of them. Like they okay. Because it was really mostly Task Force X, right? Right. And we yeah. got Amanda Waller's backstory. But the team itself was just like three panels at the end of the book. Like there weren't any like spotlights on Deadshot or Boomerang or anybody else. So I actually – I had a question for you on this one. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about the Trevor Va- Von Eaton art? Because I know having been a follower of your Flowers and Fishnets that you have, shall we say, a contentious <laughs> – a relationship with the art of Trevor Van Eaton. Yeah, <laughs> like, for those of you listening who'd never listened to me cover the Black Canary series from 1993 on the old Flowers and Fishnets podcast, um, I almost did nothing but rant against Van Eden's art on that series. Now, I have seen good Trevor Van Eden art, like we mentioned before, the Black Lightning series that he did with Tony Isabel in the 70s. Loved that work. He did a Batman annual, I think, that had Rachel Ghoul in it. I want to say it was like Batman annual number eight, maybe, maybe number nine. It was eight or nine. He did some Green Arrow strips from World's Finest. He's done some really good stuff, but at some point, it just it changed. Now, the art in these, I think, just five pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, this this section is only four pages. I like his lines. I like the character design, the way he makes the characters look, the body shapes and everything. But I actually did a tally of this just because it's something I look for in his work. He draws four pages, a total of 19 panels. Mm -hmm. Only five of the panels have background of any kind. 75% of the panels in these pages have no background detail. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? It wouldn't surprise me if in that first page, if in the script they they intended for him to show like a, an image of Captain Boomerang doing something with just the voiceover and he didn't draw that way. I don't know. I, I just mm. – the actual images of the people, I like the way he draws Gamby. I like the way he draws this bald guy. I think they look good, but there's mm. just a lack – oh, and I like the way he draws the weather with <laughs> Oh, I was about to say, yeah. Particularly, there's a scene with like where the weather wizard is reading that diary, mm-hmm. and I just I'm I absolutely in love with that line work. Actually, it's like great, I mean, yeah. there's a there's a certain scruffy photorealism to it, but then like there's an earlier shot with the guys, and they're very they're very 1950s wearing hats, mm-hmm. like way out of style for the 80s. Right, and I liked this because I felt there was a little bit of like there was definitely a, very, a nice Silver Age at least composition yeah. to the, the paneling and some of the line work. But yeah, I, I actually liked this one a lot. I felt there was like a lot of good, like shading and negative space usage. And so from an artistic point of view, I liked the panels a lot individually on this one. And, but I, I almost feel like the lack of cartooniness is making it stand out from the other stories so far, which had a very nice sort of cartoony thread. This one's pretty dark. Yeah, it is. This is like a nice crime story, especially with all of the non, the sort of the backstory for Marin. And, you know, it's like, you know, there's very much like jumping, running away from being shot at and, you know, creepy houses out in the, out in the forest and stuff like that. And stuff like that. So I, I, I actually liked it a lot. And I, I was curious how you felt about it. Cause I do from your previous. Each one of these panels taken individually, I think looks solid. 
they're good. I like the style. It is very different from every other chapter in this book, and but it's putting them all together. It's it feels a little bit unfinished. I just wish they. I wish he had like an inker or somebody else to help him out and just flesh out these images. Mm. I do. You're right. Looking at it again, that image of Mark holding the diary that looks great. Um, the panel directly below that looks like he's snorting a pixie stick or something. Else. <laughs> Which let me tell you, children, don't do that. <laughs> don't it, do it that. Is. Don't do that. Um, I, I've heard, not from experience yeah, at so, all as a child. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this compared to his last couple issues of Black Canary from 1993, worlds apart. Yeah. Like, not I just, even close. And, you know, for me, sometimes artwork uh, for a for a issue can often hinge or die on a even a single panel. Mm-hmm. It is a panel when he's reading the diary. I felt with a with different dialogue, it could have been pulled right out of a Vertigo issue. From that same era. Mm. And there could have been like, just throw in some horror, horrifying reveal that he's just had by reading this diary. And you've got yourself dropped right into like a Peter Milligan story, <laughs> you know, yeah. or something in a, in a couple of minutes. So I think that's part of what I liked about the art. I felt there was a real feel of like similar to some of the vertigo art of the time, which for me is the high water mark of DC at this era. Mm-hmm. Is and and they were going into that era of the '90s when they first really put the imprint. But all of those titles that are going to lead into that imprint are are where I'm like, oh, this is where DC is writing like the best things ever yeah. <laughs> that, that they that they're going to write. Gamby <laughs> name drops both the Mirror Master and the Top, and he mentions that you can't be one of those guys because they're both dead. Uh, and we kind of mentioned this <laughs> earlier. I think those are like my two favorite rogues. Certainly of the characters that we consider the rogues gallery, I've always liked Mirror Master. I just think he's a fun villain with a fun gimmick that you can do very kind of goofy, silly stories with him, or you can do horrifying stories with him. Uh, And I think Animal Man sort of showed some of the danger and some of the things you can do and how scary that can be. Um, Oh, yeah. yeah. But the top, I like that gimmick of just... Like the, it seems so stupid, but like, like the whirlwind villain, the Marvel villain who fought like Ant Man, oh. like just that spinning around, and as a counterattack for the Flash, I think that's very cool, very inventive, mm-hmm. and that's another one where the New Fifty Two they kind of changed him up a little bit. They called him Turbine because nobody right. plays with tops anymore. Um, so yeah. that's, that's not something you can draw a lot of inspiration from. They call him Turbine. It makes more sense. Uh, he was black in the New 52, I believe. And, and I thought that was a nice update, give a little bit more diversity to these characters. So, yeah. And also that's... they made a connection to the Speed Force. Mm-hmm. They connected him to the Speed Force, which I thought was a good thing. When you have, like, once they invented the Speed Force and having it be this sort of connecting tissue between speedsters in the DC universe, I thought that was a nice. I'm, I'm actually of the Roy Thomas school of like you both have the last name Grayson so let's talk about how your brothers <laughs> you know like and and I, I like that sort of like shared origin interconnectedness in certain superhero universes um, yeah. it was one of the things I loved in uh, when we covered Golden Age yeah it's one of the things I loved about how Ted Knight felt that one of his experiments may have brought radiation down on the earth that caused superpowers mm-hmm and so he felt that he was kind of like the patient zero of the sort of the superhero explosion of the golden age. And I was like, I love that idea. I kind of really like that idea a lot as as a sort of like um, uh, a sort of like almost like shared origin amount of superpowers. Because otherwise you get all this like weird nonsense like, let me tell you about my time traveling alien ray gun. 
that I picked up when I was drunk and knocked a guy out on the side of the road. And I sounds like I'm making that up, but I'm pretty sure that is somebody's origin right there. <laughs> well, speaking of, you know, getting drunk and fighting, uh, the <laughs> other guy in this Captain Boomerang, I- I've never found him very interesting as a Flash villain, mm-hmm. but he was certainly the best part of Suicide Squad. Oh, yeah. No, because he was like he was a joke. So he got to just tell jokes all the time, you know, and he got to play up the fact that and, you know, he got to play that sort of like sarcastic, loudmouth foreigner, right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I think he owes a lot to Paul Hogan. Yeah. <laughs> and this era in this era of time. Unlike the other members of Suicide Squad who like, even in that compromised position, you got the feeling that they were going to make the right decision in the end. Mm-hmm. You never felt that way about Digger Harkness. Oh, no, no. Yeah. And he's, he was very much like, as long as there's this explosive, I'll do as you say. <laughs> and I like that. I mean, it's like, I like that. You know, I, I love the idea of like bad characters with who will do good things because of enlightened self-interest. Yeah. You know, I like because it then it. It plays very much into the like gray areas of morality, but those characters invariably also get to, because they get to skirt both lines, get to really like take the piss out of both sides of of the superhero supervillain dichotomy. You know, they get to make fun of the villains because they themselves find them ridiculous because they're really just kind of like crim- like you know I just dress up like this because it makes it easier to rob banks. Yeah, and yet they get to like also make fun of the heroes because they're like get a day job guys, you know, like don't go around being wet blankets. You know, I'm just trying to make some scratch. (laughs) And so, so I I just, I I like that kind of character. It's kind of a fun sort of, you know, where, where Captain Cold could be, is like Parker. Captain Boomerang is definitely much more like a more sad sack version of that with, you know, with much more like jokes and a lot more jokes and humor to play off the fact that, you know, he throws sticks. (laughs) This is another example of so career criminals that are able to do some pretty impressive feats of science and engineering. It's almost like he's fighting a bunch of like mentally unbalanced Tony Starks all the time. (laughs) I think it would be so much simpler if they just said like the weather device was already there. It was already created. Yeah. His brother was dead. Or I think like in other versions, maybe it was like the Superman animated series. Like his brother was still alive and Mark just stole his creation. Yeah, he was like, this is how you're going to get yourself funded sort of situation. Yeah. All right. Let's wrap this thing up with Chapter 6. All right. Chapter 6. You know, we've got Rally Around around the Rogues, and I'm just going to – I got to read that opening panel. I think it leads it in. So we start off with this nice splash page of all of the Rogues coming out of a starburst of action, and – we start with uh, Pied Piper at the top who says, hey, guys, don't you think we need a cheer or something? Bad guys assemble, maybe? Or former Flash foes fight? Or how about... Rally round the rogues. To which, back to the idea of taking a piss out of both of them, <laughs> um, Digger Harkness mentions, blow it out of your little tin whistle, mate. <laughs> This ain't no time for theme songs. And I think that's a perfect way to kind of lead into this chapter uh, where the rogues are finally all 
coming together because, and we got this starting off very early with uh, Trickster, there's some sort of telepathic or mental impressions being sent out by this bald man as he kind of goes through all of their origins. We then see in the next page that uh, they are closing in on Gamby's tailor shop, which still has a destroyed front window. And our secret villain is finally revealed as bursting forth from the tailor shop is Gorilla Grodd, the super intelligent ape of Gorilla City and longtime foe of the Flash back in Flash 106, as you said earlier, with the Pied Piper. Um, he hits him with some sort of mental blast, so something key to his power. So he's definitely finally remembered who he is, the the bald man, and has seemed to have regained some of his abilities. He stuns the rogues who then come back at him, and we then get a couple of pages of the rogues all taking a swipe at him, first starting with Captain Boomerang and Captain Cold and Weather Wizard, and he's making a pretty good show of it. Um, they're hitting him from time to time, but he's also staying out of their way pretty well, even after Pied Piper. Um, even getting as far as getting his hands on the trickster, at which point the trickster, in a moment of panic, not wanting to get torn apart by a super strong gorilla, lays one on right in the kisser for Grodd, which, much to their surprise, knocks him out. <laughs> Full-grown bull gorilla knocked out by a single punch by a kind of spindly dude. Um, they then realize very quickly that he's actually wearing a gorilla costume. And as they take it off, we see that he is still in his bald human self um, in, it looks like, underwear with hearts. Um, and he wore his black socks. How 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 dad of him <laughs> to wear underwear and black socks at the same time. Um, they're looking for some explanations, at which point Gamby comes in and sort of kind of gets them the idea that they were trying to set him straight with who he was, and that's when he got him into the costume, and that's how they got these sort of mental ex- impressions. But, you know, that they talk about how the costume was so convincing that he they were convinced he would have super strength, even though he did, Grodd didn't. And as they're talking to him, Grodd starts to fully remember and fully gain his powers to the point that he's transformed back into his true gorilla self. At which point we see that the rogues have real problems now because not only does he have his agility and his ferocity and his mental powers, but now truly has recovered his gorilla super strength. Luckily, as it looks too bad for the the rogues, Blatt, (laughs) the living pet musical note. I can't believe I said that out loud. (laughs) The living pet musical note jumps in at the last moment, bashing good old Grodd into unconsciousness. At which point we get a little sort of backstory of Gamby where someone I think asks one of the villains even, which is makes it even more ironic, asks the very straightforward question, why do you make stuff for criminals? At which point he's like, yeah, business is business. <laughs> In a very nonchalant sort of way. Um, And he pretty much gives the rogues a pass and is like, here, you guys take off and I'll make sure that the proper authorities get take care of Grodd. And so they do. They take this opportunity to to lamb it. And we see that Gamby has some little more going on as he's able to levitate Grodd back into his shop. And when we see him back in the shop, we see that there are two Gambies there. And in fact, the one Gamby that just spoke with all the rogues was in fact Solvar, 
king and ruler of Gorilla City and pretty much Grodd's main villain in our main nemesis in Gorilla City. After one of the many different numerous crimes against humanity and Gorilla Kind that Grodd has has perpetrated, he had been punished this time to basically place him in a, a dormant human body and suppress all his powers. Um, but he was able to escape and apparently with Gamby's help was able to regain and the help of the rogues regain his former glory. Luckily, Solvar showed up in time for them to subdue him again and return him back to Gorilla City, at which point we're pretty much coming at the end. And so it sort of ends on a all's well that ends well sort of note at the end. Our secret villain is revealed. The rogues still make it off to be rogues out to fight another day. And everything really basically returns back to normal, except for uh, Gamby's broken up front window. <laughs> and that's pretty much where we end. Yeah. If that wasn't a let's just wrap everything up chapter, I don't know what is. But it works. And like I said, I think the clues from the first chapter were there that once you go back and you're like, you look at the way he speaks, the language that he uses, it's like, yeah, of course, it couldn't have been anybody other than Grodd. Yeah. Um, and even you, though Grodd is not a rogue per se, yeah, he, he's one of the Flash's main villains. You couldn't do this book without him. He's not in the, the bank robbing rogue sort mm-hmm. of set. He's definitely he's definitely one of their, their Flash's more like – and deadly, obviously, supervillains. And from the go, it's not like deadly in the sense that he's deadly but doesn't actually use any deadly force against the Flash. Rather, no, he's deadly and uses deadly force. Yeah. But it's <laughs> – I actually – there's a part when I first was reading it, I thought it might be Abracadabra from the future oh, and yeah. it just lost – and and he's got a very like overly theatrical – and he's another one of the characters – actually, he's a rogue I really like because he's all predicated on the Arthur C. Clarke idea of technology so advanced is indistinguishable from magic. Right. And I've always loved that idea of, oh, he's a sorcerer character from the future where he just uses future technology to look like magic. Yeah, exactly. You know, which I thought, once again, plays back into that sort of science hero theme of the Flash series. Yeah, I forgot about him. That that was good. That would have been a cool reveal, too. So, mm-hmm. My first note on the art, both the art and lettering in this chapter were done by Don Simpson. I'm not necessarily a fan of the, his work in this chapter it, the first splash page, it's dynamic. We see all of the rows together, but I think it's a little uneven. The characters aren't really on model. But all problems that I have with this art are forgiven simply by the one panel of Grodd snapping the ropes and standing up while wearing polka dot boxer shorts. Yeah, no, that is that is uh, definitely one of the... <laughs> One of the top ones. Um, Yeah, no, I just it's this is definitely one where like the art really went fully cartoony at this point. Mm -hmm. And I think coming on the heels of Van Eaton's um, section, which I felt had a very like, I think, a much more mature line work. It's a little it's a little silly. Mm -hmm. But you know what? I mean, there's nothing there's been no nothing in the premise of this entire issue that doesn't have the word silly attached to it at some <laughs> level. So, so I'm okay with it. It is fitting. It, yeah. And it yeah. works fine. Um, the other note in terms of art, I don't know what his model was, but his Grodd and Solovar look exactly like, did you ever see the movie creep show? Yes. The crate, the storyline, the crate where there's a, just like a box in this college like lab that has like this gorilla beast inside it looks mm-hmm. exactly like this. Like 
he must have been looking at that as a reference for Grodd and Solovar in this book because well, they look I, exactly like that monster. Well, I think also the thing too is that like this this vision of especially with these like these long like almost like weird mutton choppy sort <laughs> yeah. of things on the side, <laughs> yeah. um, that's very much in the original Infantino art. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. I saw because I, I um, as part of the Flash show coming out in season two, they released on Comicsology's all of the rogue first appearances mm-hmm. and I, and I picked those up and the art's pretty on point here to what he looks like in those books. Good. Like that one panel at the end with Solvar and talking to Gamby mm-hmm. that, and the close up of his face. I mean, that looks almost like line for line what the Carmen Infantino Solvar looked like. And this was something that Bass and I talked about when we did the secret origin of uh, Gorilla City. <laughs> I don't know what Carmine Infantino was modeling it off of because they almost look like gorilla masks. Like he was, like he was basing them off of like Planet of the Apes masks or something of that. And like, and not like he didn't actually go to the zoo to look at the animals. He just looked at like representations or like or like masks. Well, this could also be like I mean. Later intents of Gorilla City is that they're still gorilla-like in mm-hmm. how they move and how they look. But here I really feel, especially the way like Solvar's standing and stuff, that there's almost they're almost like gorilla men. Yeah. Like they're they're evolved gorillas, not just mentally, but there's actually a, a level of physical evolution as well to their bodies, mm-hmm. not just their minds and technology. And so um that could be that. It could also just be Don Simpson has a very cartoony style. So yeah. I loved uh, Pied Piper's blat or the, the quarter note that Giant <laughs> Saint just coming back at the end and knocking Rod out. I was like, okay, yeah. I did not see that coming, but well played. That was a nice. But note. you know what? I mean, that's as that's as like zany Haney as it can get without having actual Bob Haney write this. Right. I feel like, oh, by the way, we're just gonna knock him out with like a big living no sound note. note. Okay, yeah. that's great. Yeah, Julie Schwartz at some point was had his hand in that. I'm pretty sure at some <laughs> level. It's again. It's fun seeing the rogues work together. It's nice that they all come together to take out Grodd because they hate him because he always makes them look bad. I like that he's definitely not part of their group. There's no love no. between them. Well, ultimately, in the end of the day, like they'll screw each other over for money, and you know, if you write them at their like hardest criminal, they might even attempt to murder each other for for money or a heist or something. Mm-hmm. But like. Grodd will flat out, like, eat them. He flat out wants to, like, rule their city and eat them like food. Yeah. You know, like, so there isn't a middle ground with him where, you know, you could almost see Captain Cold and Rory both having a, and and Heatwave having a moment where you shot me while I shot you. It's like, well, we're both criminals and we kind of do that. (laughs) Buddies, buddies, let's go rob this bank. Whereas, you know, it's like, well, I'd work with you, Grodd, but your plans often involve turning everybody into monkeys or gorillas, which not down for, or you just want to rule us and treat us like slaves and eat us like food. At which point I'm like, "Mm, yeah, I can see why he doesn't get along with the other rogues. (laughs) No, it's, it's kind of like with professor zoom, you know, Mm. he's, he's just a little too murderous to really work well with the other rogues. Overall, looking at the story as one whole, the all six chapters, it's good. I liked it. I like the inventive. It, it, like Mishkin and Cohn had a really unique approach. It's like, how do we get all of these stories told? It's like, all right, well, give the guy who connects all of them, which is the guy who makes their costumes, 
give them a reason to tell somebody all their stories, which is, yeah. I mean, this was a fun take and it was a yeah. surprising reveal that, you know, we get a surprise villain. Still interesting that the flash did not show up at all. Uh, at all. But you know what? I Like I said, it's like for having his name emblazoned across the front of this issue mm-hmm. and having him laying down there and clearly one of those like, oh, have they killed the Flash moments, you know, which is the kind of opening Silver Age cover you would see all the time. Yeah, no, I mean, this is really about them. And, and I like that. I mean, once again, this is where they could easily be exported to other superheroes as villains because of their motivations. And because of how they operate. I mean, Green Arrow clearly has taken on a number of these villains as some of his own, in, specifically in the case of, like, Captain Boomerang and uh, a couple of the Rainbow Raider, which I think was very much a Flash villain for a long time. He, he got that. So there's there's been, I think, a fair amount of, like, cross between the two. Mm-hmm. And these rogues are great in that sense. It's like having a villain whose job is largely to bank rob and to run heists means that you can have that person really play anywhere. And unlike, you know, the Joker who's just so staked out with Gotham City and his love-hate relationship with Batman or Two-Face who, yeah, you could see him go elsewhere, but once again, he's got that, like, sort of psychological lock on Gotham City or the Riddler or any of them. They're all stuck there. Or, you know, Superman villains who... For the most part, you know, if you're not going up against Superman, you really, in many ways, just outclass whoever you're going up against. Mm -hmm. You know, like Brainiac, Booster Gold and Blue Beetle are not breeding Brainiac anytime soon. Right. You know, but Booster Gold and Blue Beetle could totally go up against the rogues. Mm -hmm. And it would be a fair fight on both sides and hilariously interesting. You know, whereas like, you know, although I, I would see a Superman versus the rogues issue if they did it smartly, like that they were playing like the ultimate heist against Superman or something. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, I could see them trying on that challenge, but yeah, it's, it's, I like them for that reason. Like as career criminals, they easily slot into any crime fighters, rogues gallery for a moment, especially if they need it, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially if they, especially if they have a light bench. Like they each have their own little gimmick and each one of their gimmicks is fun and it's unique and it's specific to them. And they work as sort of serial villains that you can do like one at a time. So mm-hmm. I think you can have Flash fight Weather Wizard in one issue or one half-hour cartoon animated series. You can have him fight Trickster and Pied Piper in the next two issues or something mm-hmm. like that. When you think about the future Flash movie and potentially sequels if it's successful, I really hope they don't do a version of the reverse Flash or Professor Zoom because we've gotten that for two years now on the TV show. I would love to see him go up against Grodd or Gorilla City or something just because that would be fun to see on a big movie scope and spectacle. Mm -hmm. Um, Captain Cold, as much as I like him, I don't think he can carry a two-hour movie against the Flash. Well, and they're into this huge, like... You know, well, I you know I don't want to speculate at all where Warner Brothers is going because apparently they've had a little bit of a bloodbath slash <laughs> uh, management change after Batman v Superman's debacle, <laughs> if we should say the least. I mean, regardless of what you feel about that movie, the fact that the movie didn't make a billion dollars is a clear sign they didn't do it right. Right. Because I think Deadpool and Civil War both showed that there's a million dollars basically just sitting around for any superhero movie to get if you make a good one. 
Right. Especially since you've made it with the three most prominent superheroes in the world. <laughs> the last two Batman movies made over a billion dollars. You add yeah, Superman yeah. and Wonder Woman to that mix and you can't do the same. Yeah, like you should you should be able to right. knock it out of the park without trying. But so um, what I was saying was I think if they did – like I don't think a Flash movie can handle just one villain or I don't think one <coughs> villain can handle well, a Flash I, in a movie. I think so, it's got to be the rogues. It's got to be a group. Well, and I think that's the other problem that we're going to run into is like – Flash's villains lend themselves so much more for episodic storytelling. Mm -hmm. Like, because they're often one-off heists. And so they're heist villains. And so they're fun. Like, I mean, it's perfect for a TV show. It's perfect for, oh, we're going to have this villain run this one heist, is back in town to run this one heist, and we're going to cross swords again. And having them run any, like, big threats, you need, like, a time-traveling villain, or you need, like... Some sort of villain that's got enough, you know, like I don't see them putting Abracadabra out there because, frankly, he's ridiculous sounding. <laughs> I mean, premise wise, he's awesome. It's an awesome premise. But just like what he's built up as his sort of like his shtick, I don't think would translate well. Gorilla Grodd, probably a good one. But I don't know if is that the one you want to lead with? Well, I would have said the same thing, except they're leading with Doomsday and the Suicide Squad. So yeah, no, I, just, I know, I know, I know, <sighs> and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> then, getting back to the small screen and the episodic television, I mean, we've talked a little bit about these guys individually, but overall, what have you thought about the representations of the Rogues on the original '90s Flash TV show and the current one at CW? The 90s one, it was great to have them. I mean, we got Captain Cold, we got the Trickster, and we got Mirror Master. But during the 90s, they didn't understand how much, how they could hew very close to the source material. And, you know, everything was still that post-Batman 89 mentality of, of how to redo and package it for the audiences. So I felt they kind of missed their mark on a few of them, but they had them. I mean, that's, I mean, that's first victory right there, mm -hmm. that they had them. And then, you know, many of them were going to come on to appear again in the Justice League cartoons. There's a whole, like, Flash Day episode where it's basically all the rogues. It's, what, Flash, Batman, and Orion of the New Gods versus the rogues on a day that Flash is getting awarded, uh, you know, the key to the city. I mean, so – and we even see that, like, Flash has this great moment where – He's pretty actually much more concerned about the fact that Trickster's not on his meds than anything else. And there's this this very almost touching moment where he's like, now, Jesse, you're off your meds again, aren't you? He's like, but they make my head all fuzzy. Now, you know, we talked about this. And I was just like, that's the kind of conversation a cop might have with a criminal who they've seen a lot who has – Substance abuse issues or does have mental illness problems like, mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've known police officers and I've seen them talk to someone with mental illness that they've dealt with more once more than once before in that exact same manner. And so I liked that. I mean, that's very like flash as a cop sort of thing. Okay. I, I loved all their portrayals. Um, you know, we, we have a little bit of disagreement, but a heat wave and um, Captain Cold have been great. Pied Piper, even in his one, his two appearances, I thought was really good too. They just, I think it just crossed the board. Golden Glider for having such a ridiculous power premise. You know, they just gave her a completely new one, just kept the name and kept her affiliation and it works. And now she's like a femme fatale Bonnie, you know, to her brother Clyde, as it were, in the in the form of uh, Leonard. Right. But yeah, yeah, no, I, uh, who else? Uh, I mean, Weather Wizard was in, well, 
they played two different weather wizards. They did both right. weathers. One was in the first episode, and then one was in like the mid-season finale of the first season. He's, I think, the farthest from type. Yeah. Because he's very much still into that. They really got him on that murder spree. In fact, actually, I think part of the problem that we really ran into, too, is like when they did introduce him, they really had his power level so ramped up that the Flash basically had to go back in time to stop him. (laughs) And so we're like, okay, that's you've kind of ramped him up a little too powerful to at the get go to to make him a viable or and well, you know what? Whatever. Powerful villain just means you got to be really clever and really powerful with yourself when you stop him. So, so yeah, no, I've liked it. I've absolutely liked where they're going. I like the fact that, you know, like we said before, he's got a Batman and Superman and, and Spider-Man deep bench. So for episodic television, the Flash has just basically got this, like, just everything's pre-written pretty much. Mm-hmm. You just have to sophisticate it and modernize it and CW it up <laughs> pretty much to get it to work right. Uh, one of my last questions then. Sure. From comics specifically, do you have a favorite rogue? Um, from comics specifically, I'd have to actually say it'd be Pied Piper because of his friendship with Wally. I really enjoyed that character. As an actual criminal rogue, I think definitely the Jeff Johns uh, Captain Cold, mm-hmm. where you get him really written as like the consummate bank robber, professional thief, mm-hmm. more than just like the snatch and grab artist. I like that. That's like, it's the obvious turn to do with the character that makes him fun and relevant and really makes him easy to write stories about that. Yeah. I think is a lot better. Um, Grodd's always good. I mean, Grodd's a threat. Grodd's a real threat when he hits the stage. Right. You know, Barry's physical tricks don't always work on him because he's just so strong. And then he's got those mental powers that get all the way around super speed. So whereas everybody else is kind of like, you know, I mean, Captain Boomerang. The Flash can outrun his boomerang. So we pretty much we're done. <laughs> yeah. You know, whereas Grodd is like has this new unique position of like being a sort of terrifying villain for, you know, the one really like almost Superman, Batman-esque villain for the Flash. And so I like him as that. Um, for recommendations, because yep. I, I that's usually where we go from this. I would just honestly, I'd recommend any time. Scott Collins is drawing the rogues. Mm-hmm. Any of the issues, so that Jeff Johns run or the Rogue War that they did or any of those, visually I feel he captures the art the best. Yeah. Um, and I can always recommend the Wally West run, but at the, which point they're not really villains, so that's a whole different version of the characters. Right. But if you want them in their classic sort of rogue sense, but in a much more sophisticated, I would have to say Jeff Johns is the way to go. Jeff Johns' flash run, especially with, the, with that Scott Collins art. Yeah, agreed. I was going to recommend the same stuff. I mean, if you want the original appearances and the Silver Age kind of silliness, goofiness, but fun, I mean, you can do the Showcase Presents, which are black and white, but they've also started doing color reprints in Flash Chronicles or the Flash Silver Age Omnibus. But definitely uh, Jeff Johns, the way he retooled the characters, they were great. Grodd is my favorite Flash villain. He's like top five DC villains of all time. But looking at just the, the criminals... 
you made good cases for both Captain Cold and Pied Piper. I like them both. I used to like Mirror Master the most, but more recently, as I was reading more about the top and before he died and the way, like, spinning at such things sort of, like, warped his brain and the actual physiology of his brain started to come untouched and it gave him these weird mental powers. That was just sort of fascinating. And as a... Mm-hmm. As a slightly sideways reverse flash, like linking like the new fifty two turbine to the speed force, kind of tapping into the opposite of the speed as you know he's not reverse flash, he's not zoom, but I look at him as sort of a sideways version of that type of antithesis. Yeah. Uh, so that just kind of fascinates because there's a little more time based powers, yeah, yeah, and temporal powers. You know, actually, um. I think we, we mentioned it before, but the Grant Morrison Animal Man Mirror Master mm-hmm. is my favorite Mirror Master yeah. iteration. Like, um, I mean, there were some good in the Wally West run. There were some good ones. In fact, there was one where that same Mirror Master was also kind of like a stalker ex-boyfriend, mm-hmm. which was a bit of a creepy episode, but um, had a pretty classic like flash trapped in the mirror universe uh, trap that he's done before, so I think that was a pretty cool one. But that's a good one. I, I, I'm trying to think of all uh, my favorite appearances of all the different rogues and when when to read them. Um, I ne- I don't really have a favorite Heat Wave. Um, yeah. He's always been kind of one notish for me. Um, Trickster, just just watch Mark Hamill be Trickster. <laughs> just watch him. Be, you're done. You 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 don't need any other ones. Oh, although I did love the fact that like um. They brought him back. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He yeah. still. He was still the trickster in in the new Flash series. That's I. I think as a, a fan of the '90s Flash series, that's been one of my favorite things uh, to see. Like all of the actors they brought back. Um, in fact, even in one of the issues, the mayor of Central City is one of the actors that played one of the beat cops from the original series, yeah. like from the, the from the old 90s series. In fact, I think he even had the same name. So it's almost as if he had eventually gone on to become the, the mayor of the city later in his career. I think one of my problems with Trickster, like I said, I was reading the Silver Age ones and the Jeff Johns run at the same time. I think it's the fact that I really don't like the second trickster that John's introduced, the little kid <laughs> version with his stupid yeah. skater jeans and his his like weird hair. And I just I, n- I never liked that version of the character. So well, but the original one, I think you farm him out to another character like a Booster Gold or Nightwing or somebody. And he could be a lot more fun, a lot more inventive. Well, I mean, just even in that sequence we see in this issue with him mm-hmm. up against Booster Gold, I was like. I mean, to the point I mistook it as the retcon of his origin. Right. And I, I was completely okay with it. I mean, I wasn't okay with the fact that it wasn't the Flash, but I was okay with the idea of, like, if you were retconning the character and wanting to bring him back, oh, well, here's a perfect character to throw him up against, you know, like, you know, a nice upstanding guy. But I think also, um, especially when he crossed over with Blue Beetle and when he has if he whenever he has these sort of crossovers, in this case with Booster Gold, it's nice in that he is a a dark reflection of both of their motivations in some ways, you know, as being the dark reflection of the stunt and special effects guy. And then the dark reflection of this, like showman who's out for his, for the money in both cases. But yeah, no, other than that, he's, he's not my favorite of characters, except, except basically that when Mark Hamill does it. (laughs) 
All right. Well, I think we can leave on that note. So, Dr. G, where can people find you if they want to hear more from you in the podcast realm? All right. If they want to hear more from us in the podcast realm, um, you can find episodes at the Pulp to Pixel pulp to pixel.blogspot.com um we also have a facebook page the pulp to pixel podcast you can find us there episodes there as well uh you can subscribe to us through itunes and stitcher under the pulp to pixel podcast um you can also follow me on twitter at pulp to pixel where i go under the name dr g nerdologist and you can email us if you so are inclined at the email address pulp to pixel at gmail so I think that's about everywhere you can find us. Um, Pulp to Pixel, we currently have two titles that we run on a, through, the, through the feed. Um, the first is Welcome to Astro City, where we're an indexing show doing an issue-by-issue issue on Kurt Busiek's, uh seminal series, Astro City. And um, we have our second show, Secret Sagas of the Multiverse, where we are basically covering general geek topics. A lot of movies and television shows that come out get reviewed. I'm At this point, with the slate of movies and television shows, to be coming out for the next like three to four years. I'm pretty sure that show is going to turn into our movie and TV show <laughs> review show. And um, I don't have official yet, but um, we're looking at, I've been wanting to expand into a third show about gaming, tabletop role-playing game, all about with superhero themes. So I haven't been able to put everything together on that. So, but um, if I say it out loud, maybe I'll be more inclined to get it done in time. So that's about it for me. Well, that's very, very cool. I'm looking forward to see what you can do with the gaming show. I highly recommend listeners. uh, I think the most recent episode just came out is about an interview with Kurt Busiek. You got to check that one out. One more time, thank you very much for being on this episode of Secret Origins. It was great talking these characters with you, and I had a lot of fun. Oh, oh yeah, me too. Thanks for having me on. It was uh, especially one where I got to talk about so many different DC characters at once. It was it was like reliving going through my post crisis collection all over again. <laughs> As you'll recall, the Secret Origins podcast has been hosting a listener appreciation contest for the last couple weeks. Listeners were encouraged to submit iTunes reviews for podcasts on the Fire & Water Network. The winner receives a free copy of this issue, Secret Origins 41, signed by the writers Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohn. And said winner will be announced after the listener feedback section, so you'll just have to wait a few more minutes. Last episode covered the origin of the Teen Titans from Secret Origins Annual Number 3. That episode received Twitter favorites and retweets from Aaron Anderson, Alec Hauser, Andrew in Belfast, Ange, Captain Marvel at Captain Marvel 75, Chris Sheehan, Cindy Womack, Codeman, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Book Insurance, Comic Reflections, Craig 101, Dan at Dinosaur Number 1, David Gallagher, David Pfister, DS and RS, Earth 2 Chris, Fire and Water Network, Gregor Rougeau, The Hammer Strikes, Hicks, Irredeemable Shag, Jason Pickering, Jeremy Gunter, Jim Bow, Carl Disley, Kevin Hasty, Mario at Luther Lang, Matthew Barton, Mela Experience V2, Moises L, Phil, Raven Roth, Rift, World Spine Podcast, Scarlet Baldwin, Sean at Sergey Bamba, Speed Force, Tom Panaris, Trekker Talk, Two True Freaks, 
Victorious B.I.G., and Willie Yarbrough. David Gallagher tweeted, My history with the Teen Titans began with those anti-drug comics in the 80s right around the time Cyborg joined the Super Friends cartoon. Craig101 tweeted, One of the first comics I ever owned and still my favorite Titans story. Well, thanks to everyone who tweeted about the show. If I missed your name, I apologize. Please remind me and I will correct that error next time. Over on Facebook, we got new likes and shares from Brian Green, Christopher Luke, Clinton Robison, Corey Ehrman, David Ace Gutierrez, David Trenner, Dale Dale, Gotham Shiorin, Gene Hendricks, Greg Arujo, Igor Glushkin, James Vanover, James Murray, Kellel Commandy, Keith G. Baker, Lee Marble, Logan Drydale, Michael Lane, Michael Wagner, Mike Gillis, Nathaniel Hubbard, Nicholas Prom, Pat Sampson, Ruth Sutherland, Ryan Johnson, Shag, Sean Walsh, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Teen Titans Wasteland, and Van Z. Sean Myers said annual number three was his all-time favorite issue of Secret Origins. Nathaniel Hubbard replied to the Facebook post to correct a few errors he made during the episode. I'm not going to read which errors he made. You can either figure it out yourself or assume Hub is a foolish amateur. Such is the risk of appearing on the Secret Origins podcast. Van Z said, one of my favorite issues of the original Teen Titans series was when Mal became the Guardian. They had to make him the Hornblower because of a Jim Harper clone. Clones plus comics equals sucks. Van Z also posted a picture of Mal in his first Hornblower costume with stars on the legs and arms. I don't care for the design, but I love the look of characters with afros and masks. I love that look on Black Lightning, I loved the original look of Jon Stewart when he had hair and wore a mask, and I like the look on Mal in that image. Moving on to the website feedback, which is at fireandwaterpodcast.com. As always, I try to respond to everyone who leaves comments on the website, though I may not read the entire message on the show. Given that last episode was quite long and required three other men to handle, I expected to get a lot of lengthy, personal, and thoughtful comments. Instead, I got a lot of childish snickering at innuendo and syntax, and those same listeners, I imagine, are still laughing at my earlier descriptions of quite long and requiring three other men to handle. Paul Hicks, one of the two better hosts of the Doom Patrol podcast, Waiting for Doom, said, So much childish innuendo this episode. I'm just going to check out the dick pics in the other post rather than indulge you guys. I did, indeed, post a lot of pictures of Dick in the sample pages thread. Dick on the cover, and Dick drawn by a lot of different artists from last issue. David Ace Gutierrez, my guest from the Mr. Miracle segment back on episode 33, said, I almost lost it when Tom Panneri said he liked how Colleen Doran inserted Dick into the original pages. (sighs) Bradley Null, who was my guest on the Elongated Man origin way back on episode 30, said, It's like a crossover of several of my favorite podcasts, covering the annual of one of my favorite titles, covering one of my favorite teams. That's a lot of favorites for an issue that isn't on my favorites list. Great episode. Well, thank you, Bradley, I think. Rob Kelly, who is perhaps best known for his appearance way, way back on episode 10 when we talked about The Phantom Stranger, Rob said he appreciated that I didn't add out the stunned silence and righteous indignation of my guests after I ranted about how much I disliked the cover. Rob also said, Chris had quite the potty mouth this time around. Obviously, he wasn't worried about getting slapped. And Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl said, 
top episode, and I agree with Ryan that this should have been a Titans giant rather than a Secret Origins issue for its sheer new reader unfriendliness. Also, that cover is the epitome of DC's obsession with the T in Teen Titans, which led to the worst headquarters ever in comics, that stupid tower that is just asking for a faceless space giant to come along and upend it. Hey, that stupid tower is getting its own secret origin story in episode 46. Martin continued, And I think production messed up. See the slanted purple bar behind the logo? Surely Perez meant the masthead to be dropped in there a la the Haney run. See, I'm not the only one to find fault with the cover. In fact, Nathaniel Wayne left a comment wholeheartedly agreeing with me. He said, Thank you for being the voice of reason on that cover. I looked at the thing and immediately thought, Yeesh, what a mess. And I was starting to wonder if I was crazy as everybody else was praising it. Thanks for confirming that I'm not actually nuts. Or at least no more than you are. See, Nathaniel Wayne hates the cover too, and he does a podcast covering comic books from the 90s, so he clearly knows from taste. Getting back to Martin, he said, Great guests, and it was clever to homage that first Brave and the Bold issue by having three chaps. Yes, that was totally intentional. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you caught that, Martin. <laughs> Smart guy. Uh, Martin adds, on one hand, it's commendable that George Perez was trying to get all the previous origins in there. On the other hand, it makes for a very complicated, convoluted, and not that exciting read. I think that this is the same mental muscle that has him wanting to draw every member of the Titans here or every Legionnaire there. Perez is a brilliant talent and by all accounts a lovely man, but sometimes it's good to dial back the detail. I completely agree, Martin. We are on the same beautiful but crowded page there. Uh, Jimmy McGlinchey said, I have never had a major love for the Wolfman Perez Titans run, probably because I have not read it from the start. I have a few of the trades, Judas Contract, Terra Incognito, The Terror of Trigon, and Who is Donna Troy. The art is gorgeous, and there are some good stories in there, but I felt I was missing a lot of the story as it seemed to rely on a lot of backstory from earlier tales, especially with respect to Brother Blood. Jimmy goes on to mention the rest of his reading experience with the Titans. He also says, I picked up the two Showcase Presents trade paperbacks, some good art, but the stories are very much out there. One trope I picked up on the early issues was the four members entering arm in arm. I wonder who decided that was the best way to make an entrance. Well, I have no idea, Jimmy, but I think every group should enter that way. I mean, can you imagine in Avengers Infinity War Part 2 if the Avengers and the Guardians of the Galaxy stroll up on Thanos locked arm in arm? What's his stupid gauntlet going to do against that? We got a comment from Rift who said, To your comments that this issue was more a history of the Teen Titans than it is the origin, this is my impression as not having read any of the runs apart from the Terra Deathstroke trade and going off the discussions of this episode. Perhaps they were trying to cover the origins of the many different versions, incarnations, or volumes of the team as represented on the cover. Well, I think that's probably a good assumption. Uh, Rift also said, I might have to read a few more of the Teen Titans in order to grasp how on earth Dick could be so depressed when he has Starfire so desperate to be with him. That's a good point, and Rift, you definitely should read more of the new Teen Titans to see why Starfire is so desperate for Dick. Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog Comics Something Something said, I only read the Teen Titans with any regularity when Wolfman and Perez took over. 
as you say throughout the show, without a longer history, I was basically lost here. I mean, I knew who the characters were because of a life of comic reading, but I knew nothing of these flashback stories, so hearing you guys discuss these plots and villains added a ton to the backstory that made me at least get what Paris was going for. It is a love letter to the Titans' continuity, too bad I was lost, especially the villain reveal. Who the hell is that guy? I think having multiple artists contribute pages in the book like this is a risky endeavor. On one hand, I like seeing these guys who have a real history with these characters returning. On the other hand, if one guy shines, like the Maguire pages here, you end up thinking, man, I wish he had drawn the whole book the entire time you're reading. Yeah, that's a really good point, Ange. I at least wish all of the dream stuff or the present day story was the same artist, but it seems to alternate between Michael Bear and Grant Meehan sometimes. And finally, Diablo Frank of the Rolled Spine Podcast Network left a comment longer than everyone else's put together. I'm going to truncate it, of course, after Frank catalogs his entire autobiographical history with reading these comics. Frank says, This annual was likely the first Secret Origins I ever bought, as a back issue when I was still more of a Titans fan than a DC one. I found it exasperating on first read. I had picked up some Silver Age Teen Titans cheap in the early 90s when nobody wanted them, including myself, because I stopped bothering with those pretty damn quick. Much of this annual covers that material, but in such an oblique fashion that I often didn't know what the hell was going on for lack of description and context. Also, the circular, repetitive, obtuse conversations slash cut-rate wannabe Ditko mind flips between Dick and the enigmatic entity were driving me up a wall. It was deeply frustrating, unsatisfying, and dull. I have a greater tolerance on this reading, but I still think everyone would have benefited from a more linear and comprehensive look at the pre-New Teen Titans team. It's spending the equivalent of a miniseries page length on a clip show still tries my patience. Yes, that was the same problem that I had with the story on my first reading. My appreciation for it did increase after Tom, Chris, and Hub schooled me on a quarter of a century's worth of Titans material, but that is still frustrating that I needed so much prerequisite reading to understand this issue. And then Frank goes on to critique each of the artists involved in the last issue, and because it's Frank, those critiques include allusions to Beyoncé's Bootylicious and Sisko's Thong Song. But I liked it best when he said, Kevin Maguire's art is so good it's no wonder he erroneously convinced fans of the viability of a Titans West series for years after this annual. Frank also addressed the commonality between the new Teen Titans and the Legion of Superheroes regarding the sexualization of the would-be youthful heroes. How many other teams, Frank asks, could boast so many members, male and female, with plunging necklines, exposed thighs, and so forth? Such overt exploitation of pretty young things was one area where DC always seemed a bit more game than Marvel. And as a kid, I compared my own developing legs with Robin's approvingly. Wish I still could say that instead of just hoping I look better in jorts than Kevin Smith. And who did they fight but a literally and figuratively horny devil, running around in thigh-high boots and little else beyond a white loincloth? Starfire's time as a slave in the Gordanian's BDSM dungeon, Wonder Girl's ecstatic encounters with the Titans of old, the Slade Terra pairing, not a coincidence, but a safe space for burgeoning kink. I've been a fan of George Perez since my earliest reading of comics. I've been down a lot of roads with a man, and that familiarity has made me see faults where others gloss over. The man made his name by elevating standard superhero material to greatness through a wealth of intricate detailing in the art. 
his approach to writing is much the same, which unfortunately means burdening a standard story with excesses they aren't equipped to shoulder. I'm not sure what happened more often here, that I got confused by the flow of captions across the panel so that I wasn't sure I was reading the script correctly, or that I shrugged because most of the captions and dialogue didn't matter because all those words were pointless when the art was clear in conveying a career overview story. There's the first adventures, there's Titans West, here's New Teen Titans, then Dick fights a bird guy and everyone celebrates. I get it, shut up already. And Frank concludes his treatise discussing Marv Wolfman's dependence on not only quality artists during his run on New Teen Titans, but complementary storytellers, be they artists or editors. And that is it for listener feedback, but it's certainly not all for listener appreciation. On behalf of the Fire and Water Network, I want to thank everyone who has submitted an iTunes review over the last couple of weeks. All of the shows got new reviews during this time, but only a small amount of listeners fulfilled the requirements of reviewing at least 12 of the current shows on the network. Whether the podcasts on this network get two reviews or a hundred, it doesn't matter. We are grateful for your support, and we hope you continue to listen and enjoy our work. Now, on to the contest. I guess it was tough expecting so many of you to review Hero Points and Power of Fishnets. Only four people submitted enough reviews to merit entry into the final drawing. And truthfully, Paul Hicks was never going to win. I mean, I love waiting for Doom, but I wasn't going to ship comics all the way to Australia. What am I, Diamond? So, I put the other three names in a cup and asked my wife to draw one at random. She asked, what is this for? And I said, it's, you know, this listener appreciation contest for my podcast, and she asked, what podcast? And I told her mine, that I do these podcasts on the Fire and Water Network, and my wife said she didn't know that I had a podcast, she didn't know anything about this, and I said, you do know, you've been on my Star Wars podcast, and I told her about the episode of Give Me Those Star Wars, where we debated The Force Awakens, and she said, wait, you were recording that? And then that led to another conversation, and Anyway, she eventually drew a name out of the cup, and it was iTunes reviewer Piper Ruth, who is in fact Mr. Matthew Thomas Cody. Congratulations, Matt. Thank you so much for your support, Matt. Your package will be in the mail in a few days. Thank you, everybody who entered the contest. Even if you didn't win, we want to thank all of you for your support. I, as well as Rob and Shag, Chris and Cindy, Siskoid and the Canadians, we appreciate your time, your patronage, and your encouragement. We do it, at least in part, for you. And thus ends another episode of the Secret Origins podcast. Big thanks once again to Dr. G, the man of nerdology, for appearing on this episode. Next show will feature the origin of a legionnaire, plus the return of Roy Thomas for one last Golden Age adventure. And it's all happening in a couple of weeks. That's right, people. I am so thankful to you that it is exhausting. I need another break to recharge and stockpile some more recordings, but I won't be gone for long, and when I do return, oh boy, we've got some crazy stories to cover and some wonderful guests to showcase. Until then, Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. 
The Secret Origins podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. Breaking the law, breaking the law. special about a disco of death heck with all of them i'm an artist they're just robbing banks captain cold captain boomerang probably would have gone for it if i was a captain <clears throat> gotcha <clears throat> it's a snot gun Where are the others? Those crabby hacks can go plug a hole for all I care. But I'm not about to rat them out. Orion. Talk. While you still have a jaw. Hey, hey! Would you guys please take it down a notch? Let me handle this. James? You're off your meds, aren't you? Better off without them. Take them if I start feeling down. You know that's not how the medicine works. You're not well. I'm fine. You want to throw some darts? No. Listen, James, you're wearing the suit again. I am? Well, what do you know? Here's the deal, buddy. Tell me where those guys went, and I promise to come see you in the hospital. We'll play darts. The soft kind. Okay. They're going to ambush you at the Flash Museum. See? That's all we needed. Come on, we better get over there. What about your enemy? All right. Dude, as soon as you finish your drink, turn yourself in. Got me again, Flash. <laughs>